Hello and welcome to season two, episode 17 of Dualistic Unity. I will be playing the part of Andrew today. And I will also be playing the part of Andrew, but in the form of Ray. Um, you can call that whatever you like. I know that sounds confusing. If you are a first listener to this podcast, I do encourage you to go back and listen to season one. It will all make sense eventually. Uh, we do have an exciting episode today because today we are doing our Q&A episode for season two. We've been holding this off as long as possible. There have been some great questions and we're really grateful for everybody who has had a chance to submit those questions on Discord, on Patreon, on social media and otherwise. Thank you so much. Uh, we're just going to start right away here and start going through the questions. I'm going to toss it over to Andrew because I know he's got some recent ones just from this weekend and then we'll start going through the ones that we've been getting from our supporters over the last two months. Here we go. All right. I, uh, I just opened up the, the Q&As. I got like uh, probably like 15 or 20 from Instagram from my uh, post yesterday, but this one <laughs> got a funny way to start off. Are people monogamous? So I think it's important to keep in mind that humans are mammals. Like we are animals when it comes down to it naturally. So we do have instincts. I do think, however, Oh yeah, that's, uh, this is, this is a lot to unpack with this question. I think naturally we tend towards being at least maybe males more polygamous, but it depends because I think we are like biologically created with just given like, actually just watched a video on this, like a few days ago, not directly about this, but it was talking about how the differences in, in attraction and because men produce like trillions of sperm cells, like there are instinctual desires to like, as they say, like spread your seed, quote unquote, and then females have a very limited amount of eggs. So they are more focused on the nurturing side of things, especially because they are the ones who bear humans like we wouldn't have humans without females um so that i think probably naturally men tend towards the multiple partner instincts and females tend towards not desiring that as much just instinctually um but yeah that's just my initial take so ray want to hear your thoughts <laughs> that's really interesting well it's funny because when you look at different animals in the world, they all act a little differently. Like some animals are monogamous, some animals are not. And a lot, a lot of the time, it, it really depends on their lifestyle. It depends on the way that they survive, how they depend on one another. Um, I know like for uh, primates or, or apes uh, specifically, they tend to have one dominant male who protects the group. Same with lions, right? There's one dominant male who protects the group. And then the, the women basically do everything else that's important. The, the dude serves no other purpose other than just you're here for muscle, right? And maybe some guidance and that's about it. We're going to take care of everything that makes that, that makes sense. And, you know, in, in that way, our indigenous roots used to be matriarchal in the same way. Yeah. The, the, the men would be out there hunting. Yeah. The men would, would have respective positions as elders, but it was the governance was ultimately up to women, right? Because they're great at organization and that's not a stereotype in general. I know it sounds like a generalization, but that's generally how it was looked at 
because of, of the different ways that we tend to think or, or the different ways that we tend to interpret reality. Um, somebody was mentioning that men tend to think of linear problems, think about things, whereas women tend to think about nonlinear problems. They think about large, large spectrums of things like feelings and people. So given that we have that difference in experience internally and externally, it makes sense that we take different roles to some degree, but that's all biological. Like now we're, we're just talking strictly biological. And so um, are we meant to be monogamous? We have the option to be monogamous. Are we meant to be polygamous? We have the option to be polygamous um, in both directions. I mean, it's not completely unheard of for societies to have, say, a woman with two husbands, right? And it's, it's definitely more common that you would have a husband with multiple wives. And, and usually that that comes from a society that is male dominated. I mean, we're not going to lie about it. The fact is, is when you have men in power, they, they tend to start thinking about acquisition. They start to think in terms of, you know, the more I have, the more important I am, the more valuable I am. And they start to look at people in the same way. Because um, again, we look at things by and large, right? And so people become things to us as we become more and more powerful and more and more disconnected. And so we tend to go towards polygamy, we tend to go towards, you know, the harem and sultan idea, right, as opposed to a monogamous relationship, whereas you are, you have to be whole and complete in yourself. You have to be full in yourself to truly be in a monogamous relationship, because otherwise, you're probably going to be in a toxic uh, codependent relationship, which is monogamous, but not in a good way, right? It's not, you're, you're not committed to that person out of love, you're committed to that person out of fear and need and lack. And, and that kind of monogamy is, is definitely not something that we want as humans, we're almost better off, you know, just not mating at any point, if we're going to do that. And so there's a lot of things to consider there. But I think it really just comes down to the person and the culture. I'm not going to say that one is right and the other one's wrong. I, I think that it depends on the level of clarity, the level of empathy, the level of willingness in all of the partners and, and, and the, the uh, agreement that this is a relationship that these people want to be a part of. But often in terms of polygamy, especially, it's people who are taken advantage of who end up in these, in these relationships, people who are very young, who end up getting conned in by religious sex or, or they get conned in by other, you know, cultish type of groups. And before they know it, you know, they're 15 years old, married to some 35, 40 year old creep, and they're the third or fourth wife. And that often does happen. And which is why, you know, we, we tend to be so skeptical about things like that. And for good reason. But I think in a, in a conscious society where everybody is you know, um, clear, and, and enthusiastic about being clear and, and, and has integrity and is willing to define their own boundaries and state what they want to do in their own life. I think it really just comes down to you as a person, what relationship you feel comfortable with and the, the partners that you have, right? I'm sure that more than two people can make a relationship work, but the mentality would have to be there. Otherwise it would just be a nightmare. Yeah, I'm with you. Absolutely. I'm curious how, I want to take this to marriage and how this plays a role in that leading to that sort of toxicity of a codependent relationship and then marriage sprinkled in being like, you're with me forever. And there's no getting out unless we have this super just difficult situation going through a divorce and whatnot. So it seems like with marriage and everyone, I don't know, it just seems like everyone's looking for the one and gets caught up in ideas of, of soulmates and they go out and meet people and they're like, Oh, is this the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life? And it's difficult to navigate sometimes because 
I don't know, at least for me, like I don't go into situations like that. And I know Ray, even in your, I would love for you to expand on your current, you know, your relationship now, because that is, I think, relatively unique in our, in our society. But when I go into situations like dates, I'm, I'm not thinking about the long term. And a lot of people will say like, <laughs> even I've seen videos where religious people will say, you shouldn't start dating until you're ready for marriage. And it's like, that always was like very uncomfortable to me because it's like there's so much pressure and expectation in that situation. It's like, uh, am I going to find out how quickly can I find out if I want to be tied to this person for the rest of my entire existence? Like that could be at least 60 years. Like how am I supposed to know that in even a few years of being with someone, if that's the case. So I don't even know, like I, I get it with children and like bringing up a child, how it can probably be beneficial to, you know, be with one person for, you know, at least that upbringing. Um, but at the same time to think that you're kind of, stuck like quote unquote stuck with someone for that long. I mean, we see it, like we see it manifesting in that, you know, divorce rates are right around 50%. Like it's a 50, 50 flip the coin, no matter how much you love them when you start, like there's a 50% chance. And so I think that stat sort of speaks for itself, but I don't know what better options there would be that our society would be like, okay with because it seems like everyone just settles on like, get married and have kids. And they're so caught up in that being like the thing you do in your 30s, typically. And it's like, why you don't actually have to have kids, you could be single your entire life and not have a single child. And it's like, you could have an amazing life, but everyone equates like having a fulfilling and successful life to having children, which I think is fascinating too. There's just so many ways, so many different ways to take this, but yeah, would love, yeah. Just what's Ray got to say? <laughs> it's always the same thing. Like we always, we see things that other people do and we go, well, they seem happy. Let's do that. And then it becomes the thing to do. And then everybody just does it because it's the thing to do, whether it's working or not, right? Mother's Day is a perfect example, right? Like uh, the person who created Mother's Day disavowed Mother's Day shortly after because she was dis distressed at how all of these companies were making money on, on flowers and cards and everything else. To her, it was supposed to be something that was genuine, right? Now everybody just goes through the event of Mother's Day, even when they don't talk to their mother, even when the relationship's not real and it's not there. Well, it's Mother's Day. Guys in a card, right? It's like, wow, you could, be, you could be honest about your relationship. Maybe you don't have a relationship with your mother. Maybe you're just you know, abiding by the norm. You're just going through the motions for the sake of fitting in, of doing what everybody else does because it's the thing to do, right? And so marriage kind of falls into that same category to a large degree because if you think about it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to promise that you're going to be with someone for the rest of their life. You don't know who they are for the rest of their life. You don't know who you're going to be for the rest of their life. You're not taking into account any change whatsoever. And you're actually denying 
that that person could change in a way where you no longer fit in their life. And so there's a certain degree of attachment and need and lack in that promise for the future. And so that goes right into the relationship from day one. And, and that's where a lot of these relationships start to fall apart. They, they, they are based on the idea that the promise is enough, right? And as you and I have talked about previously, today has to be enough. If I'm not happy today in myself and able to make the most of my time with my partner who's happy in herself or himself, whatever your relationship might be, that's not going to last. It's not going to last because it has to be for today. Because tomorrow, that person could die. That person could change. That person could decide they're going to do something different with their life. And that doesn't make you less valuable just because you're not going to be a part of that journey. Right? That's the point. And so marriage is one of those things that should be for today. It should be something that you commit to as you go, not that you commit to for the next 40 or 50 years. And I think that's the problem when we talk about monogamy is that we're like, oh, one partner forever. It's like, I really hope that works out. That would be great. If you and your partner are that tight where you're both growing and changing and you're able to move and, and adapt to one another for an entire lifetime, Imagine how amazing you're both going to be by the, by the end of that journey. That's, that's fantastic. But rather than working at it day by day to get there, people try and make that end point and say, that'll get us there. And the entire journey suffers because of it. So do you mind if I ask about your relationship a little bit? Of course. So, yeah. So like with that, because that is so unique. So you and your wife, have a, essentially day-to-day -day marriage because if today isn't enough it never will be and that is what you live by and so I know having a child now like that must be there there's just I, I feel like so many factors at play as well like there are and there aren't because it's still the relationship at its core and things will work out as they need to be, but there's obviously not that feeling of entrapment in the way that so many, every, basically every other marriage I've ever heard of exists. So I feel like that can become sort of a boiling up for people, but how do you balance between like having a tough day and like deciding this isn't right anymore if if today if the focus is today i have to be honest about why today's not feeling right and, and I mean, we've talked about this previously but by and large if i'm annoyed with my wife it's because of me it's because i'm holding on to something and, and so that's where the relationship becomes such a good practice in self-reflection you know like krishnamurti said you see yourself in others without distortion in your relationships and that's what a marriage is. It's a beautiful living mirror, if you can embrace it that way, right? But it, it really just comes down to being here today. And, and see, poison is poison. It doesn't matter if it's a pleasant poison or not. And what I mean is that I've, I've had clients, I've met people, I've, hell, I've been a human being, and I've seen toxic parents who hate each other stay together for the sake of their children, only for those children to grow up and get into a toxic relationship that was exactly like they watched their parents showing them. So 
at that point, is it really in the best interest of the child? Probably not. Why are the parents staying together? Because the relationship's toxic and the alternative is a nasty, harsh divorce where they get to both pick a side and go at each other the way they want to because they weren't growing and they've just built this resent. And that's why these, these relationships that commit to the future, they fall apart in such a harsh, harsh way because there's, there's expectations that aren't being lived up, up to. There are frustrations. There's lack there that's no longer being met. There's a lot that goes into a relationship when you think about how it reflects on you and the, and the long-term result, right? And so when you don't build a relationship that way, there's almost this recognition that if this doesn't work, if we do decide to change and you want to go in your own direction, then at least we can still talk. At least we can be civil. There's no resent because we're going into it with eyes wide open. Maybe it won't work forever, but at least we're going to work at it to the best we can. And then that helps too, because knowing that you did your best for today changes quite a bit. That all in mind, in a relationship like that, if you were to have a child and then it suddenly doesn't work out, it's more likely that those two people would be able to at least take care of the child, split apart, have a mutually civil relationship and still put the child first. What happens is though, you end up with one person on one side, one person on the other side, the child is, is the playing piece in the middle. And then it's both parents trying to validate who's the better parent by making that child like them the most. And so it's, it's more toxicity, whether they're in the house or not, whether there's a divorce or not, right? It, it always ends up just being poison. And so it really just comes down to priority. Do you see the poison? Do you see how it's going to play out in the long term? Do you see how it starts with you? And it ends with your response and your ability to find a different way to see what's happening, right? And that, that really is the crux of, of the relationship, whether it continues on or not, but trying to keep it going through this, this illusory structure, right? Through the, the promise to the future, through the, the idea of the perfect family of hey, we parents stay together no matter what. It's like, right, if they hate each other, that's not doing anybody any good, right? You're better to show your kids this is what adults do when they recognize they're toxic for one another and let that kid learn that lesson so they don't end up in the same problem, right? But often we're too busy trying to be perfect parents to recognize that we're actually hurting our kids by not teaching them the lessons that we're going through. Yeah, it's crazy. Like the, the and we can probably, I feel like probably move on to the next question after this, because I, I feel like we, we could do a whole episode on this and relationships. Maybe it might not be a bad idea for a, for a workshop at some point, relationship focused, but That'd yeah, I think, with, yeah, with so many things in society, there's like just this blueprint that people just follow because they don't have to think for themselves. And, you know, they, they do the whole high school to college, to getting a job, to working forever, to retiring. And it's just because they don't have to think for themselves. And I think that's something that I've gone, you know, that's when I refer to the turbulence of sort of waking up is there isn't something you have to follow anymore. Like it comes back to you and like, there's no good reason to do one thing over another. It's just whatever you choose and it, it just all comes back to you there's no longer this path which can be pretty jarring and like I still even like this past week have just been it's 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 weird not being able to sort of cling to a regimented path I guess in a way and but at the same time I think 
if that was the norm to not necessarily follow blueprints and really like in school, they, they pushed us to sort of like figure out what find our, what is it called? Like Ikigai or something like what lights us up. If, if we could figure that out, like the world would probably be a significantly different place than it is. But that's actually a really good point. Cause if you think about it, it's not too different from what we're told about, like, who's your ideal partner. Right. And that, that's something that really kicks us in the ass is this idea that that's what's best for us. That somehow our preferences are, are the ideal partner. Right. And that does get into our way, but it's the exact same thing. It's like, we're shopping for something, but we're shopping based on very superficial things. And none of it comes from the perspective of how's this person going to challenge me? How's this person going to make me grow? How's this person going to, you know, push me in a direction other than stagnation? Right? How is this relationship not just beneficial because I'm no longer alone, right? but beneficial because I'm progressing, that I'm actually changing, right? I'm actually experiencing more of myself unfolding. Like, how is this relationship opening me up? Which is what a relationship should do. Right? That's what a, a positive relationship is, is when both people are open. Right? And an ongoing relationship should be a process of continuously opening up in ways that you didn't even know that you were closed. Yeah, it sounds pretty similar to manifesting in that way, like thinking that what you want is what's best for you all the time. And the reality is that you don't know, but having that sort of closed minded approach to everything, there are, you know, there's consequences to it, like, like with everything. Absolutely. Now, this leads me to a question that I do have. Do you, do you think there is a such thing as the one? Do you think that there is a such thing as your one? ideal partner, your twin flame, your soulmate? No, <laughs> a short answer. No. Um, yeah, I think that is a narrative that is just filled with toxicity and the idea that people search for it and they, because they think it's out there that when they find someone it's basically they, they just find someone they like and they're like, I have met my soulmate. I have met my twin flame. I like, this is it. This is the one. And I know people who have, you know, found that person like broken up. So it's just another narrative and, and ideology, I think belief system sort of essentially that's comes from spirituality for the most part, I think, but yeah, it's, it's just another thing that can lead to a lot of hurt and toxicity. And so when it comes to relationships, it's like, I am always just meeting myself and talking to myself. So even the idea of a twin flame is like extremely egotistical because it would imply that there is inherent division between you and someone else. And now these flames are uniting and whatever the fuck they talk about with that stuff. But yeah, it's also incredibly egotistical to, to think that there is a one for you that isn't also you. Like once you recognize that, it's like a lot of those sort of silly narratives kind of fall apart pretty quick. Yeah, yeah I think so. And I think because if it, does, if it is all just you, then technically anyone has the potential to be your soulmate. It really just comes down to who you are and whether or not you align 
with who they are, how well you two fit together, right? I know uh, a movie that you and I have talked about in the past, and I do recommend to anybody listening, uh, is The Adjustment Bureau. And what I really enjoyed about The Adjustment Bureau was the idea that the main character, in fact, would be so dramatically affected by a certain other character, just through their meeting, just through them being so, so different, they would affect one another to, to the point of changing the entire plan, which is exactly what we're talking about in terms of relationships, right? It's, it's not about that one person. It's about your ability to align with that one person, which is why selfish relationships don't work. Because when you're selfish, you're cut off. When you're caught up in yourself, you can't align with anything. And this is why you end up with people breaking up in relationships and going, you know, you're not the person I thought you were and so on and so forth. It's like, well, of course not. Why would you think I am a certain type of person? Like that just says right there why you're in this relationship. It really does. It's really indicative of why you're here. You had an idea and you wanted me to fit it. And now I don't because I can't because I'm not an idea. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'll never forget when I was walking. Uh, I was I was on some mushrooms and I, I walked past these two uh women having a conversation and she was talking about I, I don't know if she had broken up with her boyfriend recently or something but she was saying how she was the she was the perfect girlfriend and she just doesn't understand why it ended and it's like it's so fascinating to hear I I almost burst out laughing I'm glad I did because I was like two feet away from them as I was walking past but yeah to think that there is such a thing one that there is a perfect boyfriend or girlfriend and two to think that you have the awareness to know what that is and three to think that you could possibly be that knowing what it is and four for that perfect thing to be the same perfect thing that the other person thinks is perfect like the odds of one of those things is super fucking low so to think that you were that for them like everyone has a different idea of perfect. There is no objective perfect. So yeah, I, I found that extremely interesting, but yeah, the adjustment bureau, great movie. It's one of my, one of my favorites for sure. Um, and, and very interesting. And, and I think when people are able to let go of the idea that there is, you know, a soulmate, it's, it's like, how can I align with someone or how will I naturally align it's not something that you have to do and, and you don't have to be you know a square peg trying to fit into a round hole as they say but yeah it's just there's a lot more freedom in realizing that there isn't and so in that recognition it could be anyone it isn't limited and when you think that you found the one you're like we're always we're changing every single moment so there isn't even a way for you to find them like maybe they were best in a moment but then in another moment they weren't because they're never the same thing ever because you're not like you're not a stagnant idea so yeah absolutely i mean there are a number of marriages for example where um heterosexual relationship later on in the relationship one of the partners realized i actually haven't been totally honest with myself and i'm not heterosexual and the relationship can break apart and they can go their separate ways and it just goes to show you that love is love it's always you right it's just a matter of the state of mind that you're in and, and your ability to align with that other person based on on the person that you are at the moment or, or the state of mind that you're embodying so on that note i'm going to switch to another subject entirely though kind of in the same uh same tangent 
What are your thoughts on the Geneva Convention? So basically, in the most general terms, the Geneva Conventions are a set of agreements that countries came together at one point to, to establish what was proper in terms of what's war and then what's a, a, a war crime. And that's pretty much it. And it was largely agreed upon by all the governments of the world, or at least those that were part of that whole thing. And, and everybody's been kind of you know, using that as the bar for this is how we maintain peace, or this is how we maintain humanity without de-evolving into, into some degree of barbarism, let's just say. Um, so on that point, cool, great conversation. You know, for everybody who was there and, and, and witnessed it, I imagine it was, it was super useful. Um, since then, it's kind of stopped humanity from you know, going off the rails in some cases, or at least it gives the, the governments a structure to, to pretend that they give a shit about. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's important to recognize that like any other superficial structure, it really is just a matter of convenience. It really is just a matter of timing until one country just doesn't care and breaks the rules and they become irrelevant again, because that's what happens. Like it doesn't matter what the rules are, eventually they're gonna get broken. I mean, like look in the states, states are a perfect example. You have um, national parks that are, are protected from, force, uh, from logging. Those national parks year after year are being changed. The borders of those national parks are being diminished so that way they can be logged. But the government always said, well, these will be protected lands. Right, until you need them, right? And that's the problem with these structures. And so the Geneva Convention is kind of our way of saying, look, there are rules to this game. So we can't get too out of hand, but the rules only apply to people who are conscious enough to really care about them. In which case they shouldn't have to be rules. There should be people who are conscious. And this is kind of goes, this kind of goes back to our conversation in season one about laws. That while laws can be useful in terms of you know, guiding us while we get, get our grip on what reality is all about, the fact is, is that it should be self-awareness that guides us, not a set of rules saying, don't do this or you'll be punished. Don't do this or there are consequences. It should be, you probably don't want to do that because if it was you, it would hurt. Like there should be some degree of empathy. And that's the problem with all of these governmental structures with all of these, you know, the bill of rights and all these things. Like it's a great idea, but if the mentality behind it isn't maintained, then it's just a matter of time before it becomes an irrelevant document until it becomes something that's more just a matter of form and then everybody's moving around to the best of their ability despite pretending that they're following it. And, and I speak specifically about how many human rights are violated and how many things go against the things that are in the Geneva Convention and, and countries will come out and go, oh, you know, that, that's, that's against the rules. Another country will go, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And then it just continues. It just continues. There's some fine or there's some you know, political statement or somebody says something to the news and everybody gets up in arms, but it doesn't stop the system. It doesn't stop humanity from continuing on this toxic path because structures, rules, conventions are never gonna change us individually. And until we do change individually, none of it matters. It's all just a patchwork of band-aids until the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I feel like it's just pretty tied in with the idea of, of rules and morality and just needing something to follow without good reason as to why to follow it besides that you'll be breaking rules and there are repercussions to breaking the rules. And that's why you don't do it as opposed to recognizing that you don't want to do that because that's you and you're just, you know, harming and, and hurting yourself. But 
yeah, with, with all the rules, I love going back to the crosswalk example. Like one of the first times I was tripping, I was walking around New York and just, I think you had mentioned like, just make sure you're aware of, of crosswalks and because it's such a silly thing when you're on mushrooms, like when there's no cars coming and everyone's just like, there's a herd, especially in New York, there's just like a herd of people on the corner, like just waiting for the walk sign to start. And I'm always like, I walk around so much. I'm always looking to see when the lights turning yellow. And then I can see when the cars are coming so I can see them slowing down. I'm just kind of like aware of that. And then I'll start before, cause the walk sign doesn't start till like it's been red for two seconds. So I just found that so funny when I was, when I was, I think it was one of the first times I took a higher dose and I was just like looking both ways and just start walking and, and everyone's just standing there like so obedient. And you mentioned like the reason for it or the way that it sort of works out is that it takes away from our need to be aware in the moment. It's just another crutch where we don't actually have to know if there's cars coming. We just get to, we just stare and wait for the light to, to turn into a walk sign. And yeah, I mean, I think all of these ideas are between morality, Geneva convention, all of this stuff, any set of rules that we have to follow inevitably while on the surface may seem helpful and beneficial. And in ways they are, it doesn't solve the issues. It doesn't solve anything. It's, it's more or less just another band-aid. But I mean, that being said too, it's like, I don't know if we didn't have them, would, would it just take some time before we settle into the recognition? Like, do you think it's hindering the world from waking up having any set of rules ever is like a, a pretty much standard or not guaranteed, but like pretty standard hindrance to that, like things that's a really we would wake question. up quicker. Well, let's think about waterboarding, water. right? So waterboarding or enhanced interrogation um, for years is against the Geneva Conventions. It's torture, right? And so instead of stopping, they renamed it as enhanced inter interrogation techniques. So it's no longer torture, which means it's not against the Geneva Conventions. And that's exactly my point. If there was no Geneva Convention, we wouldn't be you know, arguing over the word torture. It wouldn't be a matter of whether or not is this defined as torture or is it just torturous? You're hurting somebody. That's the point. It doesn't matter if you're hurting them underneath a certain line on a rule, you're hurting somebody. And if you can't be aware of that, that's the problem. It's not that the rules don't cover this specific interrogation technique as torture, but that's the system. The system will, will mince words. The system will do everything it can to move around these rules because the system takes away awareness. And when you lack awareness, you will do anything you can so long as you don't get caught. Right? It's a classic part of our ego development. I think it's like stage three. Whatever you can do, just don't get caught. Right? This, is the, this is like between the age, I think, 12 and 15, roughly. That's typically about the level that our government operates at, right? Comparison, protection, fear, all of it. Yeah, it's funny that happens age 12 to 15 because I feel like that's when I notice kids start cheating in school is like right around that time is middle school. And that's when I first remember kids like trying to cheat on stuff. And it was such a weird thing at first. And I'm like, you can't 
do that. And then eventually it's like just the, the borders get sort of shifted and it's like, you know, you have it then in college, it's like, you have a take-home test and they're like, don't use your book or the internet. And it's like, they know like guaranteed people are going to, because there's not really any good reason not to, because there's no way to find out. So it's interesting. Yeah. And just like when things, when the rules don't change, but the verbiage starts to change so that it doesn't fit into the rule anymore. That's when things start getting more alarming, I think. And and that's inevitable in the pursuit of profit and just domination and identity and, and more for me, like there is no great reason for them when it comes to the, to the national parks, not to cut into them. Like they don't understand why, why they get to make more money from taking more logs. Like, why wouldn't I utilize this resource that I have at my disposal? So, yeah. But when, when the lines start shifting, it's like, did the rules even make a difference in the first place? Yeah. And often they don't. Right. And that's the thing. And the rules got put into place. And, and the other way, the other name for them is the humanitarian law of armed conflicts for the Geneva Conventions. Just to give you a summary of what it's for, it's, it's basically the rules of war. Now, that's kind of funny because you would think it would be more of a priority to get rid of war rather than just make rules for it and then make sure everybody lives within those rules. But that, that's what I mean. Like we learn to settle with things. We learn to settle with consequences because we don't want to give up the mentality that creates them, right? So we make rules to make sure it doesn't get out of hand, right? It's like, yeah, we can party. Just don't set the house on fire. Oh, well, okay, we'll set it, set it on fire a little bit. Just make sure you put it out after this amount of time. Oh, okay, an extra, an extra minute or so. Uh, you know what? We'll, we'll just, we'll get a budget for that wall. You know, things like, and we just keep pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off, instead of just asking people to treat the house like it's their own. Like they actually live there and give a shit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Rules, morality, all this stuff. All right, should we get another question in here i like this one i feel like we had a similar one last time uh i would love some tips slash tricks for how to remain in the eternal now <laughs> so i can start this one i mean simply put you've never left there's nowhere to go there's nothing else you have ever possibly experience. The now is not a concept or a, or a place that you get to. It's the very root of existence. It is what you are. It's, it's not an idea or a concept or something you can be in and out of. I think that is a very fundamental understanding that you have to have before we discuss, you know, more surface level ways to, you know, stay grounded and like a little bit out of your mind is that you are the present moment. There is nothing else you could ever possibly experience. So let's start with that. But yeah, it's not a concept. It's not something to, to get to. You're not trying to achieve anything so much as tune into what's already happening. Right. And that's, that's actually a clue. If, if you want some tips and some tricks on, on how to be more present, it's super important to recognize that the present doesn't involve your thinking. 
right? When you're thinking, you're thinking about concepts and concepts are always things that you've learned from the past. So you're thinking about the past, typically. So to get out of that, focus on what's real. And one thing I like to do is focus on what I feel, not necessarily emotionally, but physically. Like I'll focus on the wind on my skin or I'll focus on um, the buzz of the house that I'm in because there's always an electrical buzz in, in general until the, you'll know this when the power goes out all of a sudden it's just eerily quiet right and it's because there's this buzz of the electricity around you all the time and so I'll tune into that and then I'll try and listen to the silence underneath that right and that will bring me closer and closer to where I am right now which is the point is that there is a very big difference between recognizing that you're here now or being here now thinking about something else you're always here now. It's your experience that changes. That's the only thing that changes. You are always the present, whether or not you're focused on that experience of being the present is really the problem, right? That's the only thing that you really have to work on. And again, that comes down to just recognizing, right, right. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing I have to become. And by telling yourself these things, what you're doing is you're undercutting the majority of, of what your thought depends on, which is your identity. The fact that there is something that you need to become and that all of that is where your thought comes from your thoughts just chewing away at that problem how do i become complete how do i become you know how do i fit in how do i make the most of this life your, your brain is just chewing away at that not understanding that you're already whole and complete so if you can keep that in mind then your thoughts will start to subside if you can learn to feel the moment you're in then you will start to develop the ability to feel the moment because it's not something to be conceptually understood. It is something that you just sink into, but it takes practice. It does take practice to be able to feel what's already happening. And I know exactly how ridiculous that sounds. Yeah, yeah, certainly a practice. I like utilizing my senses as well. I know you mentioned what you can feel and yeah, definitely the sounds is what I like to settle into for sure. And just like what I can see, but yeah, it's interesting when people get caught up in trying to be in the present, they have this idea of themselves, which is typically, you know, rooted in the past that they are trying to get into the present. And it's like, you can't actually get there and striving anytime you strive to, you'll miss it. Like there's, it's impossible to do both, to strive to be present and be present at the same time. It's more so something that you recognize and sort of relax into or, or relax into the recognition that you're always there and there isn't anywhere to get. And people have a tough time when, when you say things like there isn't anywhere to get, like there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to become. There is no lack that you perceive that is actually real that you need to kind of like build yourself out of and get out of like and none of that exists and that is the the root of it in a lot of ways is like just recognizing that none of that is actually the truth it's not that there's something that's going to solve all of it it's recognizing that none of it actually exists and all you ever are is here and now. And there's as simple as that sounds, it's, it's not necessarily always easy, especially when you're used to living as this concept or idea. And so, yeah, definitely takes practice, but 
certainly worth it as well. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of like sports, right? Like in sports, it doesn't matter how much you prepare. It doesn't matter how much you work out or practice. It doesn't matter how much you think of yourself in terms of I'm the best player ever. None of that gets you into the zone. The zone is something that happens in the moment as you allow yourself to be where you are. And then it becomes an act of just effortless alignment with and as reality, right? So that's the thing is you can, you can try to be present. You can focus on understanding what the present is. You can do all of that stuff, but none of that will get you to the experience of the present more than just the experience of the present. A friend of mine once said, there is no substitute for the direct experience of reality. And that's true because all of this is just book knowledge, right? All of this dialogue, all of these concepts, they're just concepts until you actually just surrender to where you, to where you are and what you are all the time. And there's no way to describe that. That's the problem. We're trying to describe a state of being that surpasses all of the things that you're trying to, to, to get to without ever trying to surpass those things, without even being in that ballpark. Like you will become hyper-intelligent because you're not trying to be hyper-intelligent. It's a very difficult thing to explain, but it is something that becomes more apparent the more you experience it. That's really the only way to, to, to get there is to just put yourself in situations where you can see what you're capable of. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the sport uh, example because I was on a podcast um, Friday and it was a like a golf specific podcast, but they're very into like mindfulness, mental health related stuff and kind of bridging that gap of like the mental game of golf because it is very mental. And, and one of the guys was saying how one of the, his biggest struggles is driving the ball, like the part where you hit it off the tee for a shot of each hole. And it's like his, his driver, he just has this like kind of mental block with it and, and rarely hits it very well. And he was talking to a coach and, and we were talking about how in the present moment, there's like an infinite potential for you to be anything more or less when you, when you stop settling on what you think you are, let go of what you think you are as a bad driver. And he brought up a point that I kind of just let go. I, I didn't want to get too deep into it, but he was saying how his coach gave him this idea that he was like, why doesn't he just say, keep telling himself over and over that he's the best driver ever. And I saw where he was coming from. And so I didn't like want to dig into that too much, but I kind of, I, I kind of settled on typically the reason that you're not a good driver when you're a very good golfer is because you have this idea that you're not a good driver. So being able to let go of the idea that you're not a good driver and kind of relax into the uncertainty of being anything at all will allow that obvious potential that you are as very good golfer to express itself and will inevit inevitably lead you to being a good driver because that's what you are without all the mental jargon going on. And so I was like a little bit hesitant about his, his thinking with his coach's uh, advice to just keep telling himself how he's a really good driver. Cause I think that's sort of along the lines of, of like affirmations manifesting, which we talk about the consequences of those a lot, but I tried to get across, like, I, I didn't 
wasn't like, oh, don't do that. But I, I just said, well, you know, typically the reason is because you have this idea that you aren't a good driver. It's not usually the, uh, the positive thinking that needs to help because I'm thinking of this now. I didn't say this on the podcast, but you know, when he hits his irons or his putts, he doesn't keep telling himself I'm the best putter ever. I'm the best putter ever. I'm the best putter ever. He just putts. He just hits his irons or whatever. Um, so yeah, it was interesting though, to, to hear that perspective. Cause I was a little bit just hesitant with, with that advice that he was given. With good reason, right? Because when you're trying to be the best, anything, now there's a lot more at stake, right? It's way harder to relax because now anything that's not the best, immediately you're like, ah, oh, gotta convince myself more. I'm best, I'm best, I'm best, right? And you just keep doing it, right? And, and, and that takes more and more energy. Suddenly you're more and more afraid of failure. You're more and more afraid of not living up to that expectation or that thing that you need to see yourself as. And it gets you farther and farther and farther away from the state of mind where you're actually gonna be able to just hammer the shit out of that ball. Right. And it's because you're relaxed and your body's fluid, right? And you can feel the alignment and the flow and it all just happens on its own. And that that's very much the thing. This is why Bruce Lee was always saying, like, be like water, right? Which seems very difficult when you first start contemplating it because you're like, well, right. But water doesn't say which way it's flowing. It's like, right. It flows with what's happening to it. That's the point, which leads me to another question that we had. Actually, this is a fairly common question because we talk about getting out of our way, right? And, okay, I'm just gonna read the question. When questioning me as in my identity, is it more to recognize myself as the awareness that we all are and then just be that presence for then on out? Or is it that I don't have to be my past and I'm able to just do what I want or both? So in other words, if I'm not identifying, why would I choose anything, right? If I'm not, trying to maintain this idea of myself, does that mean I'm not making choices anymore? Is there no more free will in that? How does one not try to get anywhere and still move around in life? Oof, that's a, that's a good one. I feel like I'm actively processing that every single day these days. Um, but yeah, I think the initial question, it seemed like there was still, there was still a lot of ideas of something they were trying to be like recognizing they're the awareness of everything, recognizing that they are everyone. Like, so which one do I be? And it's like still asking, what do I identify as now? If I'm not identifying as my story or this idea anymore, like I gotta identify as something. And, and the recognition is that you don't, you don't have to try to be anything at all. You can recognize it and sort of relax into that recognition and it's not another identity that you have to cling to or or cling to the idea that you're everyone and everything because again any idea any concept that you cling to is just another idea like it's not what you actually are any thought that you have about what you are is never actually what you are so but it's also not you know the resistance to having an idea of what you are like, like resisting that is all like, it's, it's kind of paradoxical. And, and, but I think what you are is just what you are when you're not trying to be anything at all and not getting too caught up in worrying about what that is or what that actually ends up looking like in reality, I think also. So it's not that you have to, to be or to do 
anything or to go anywhere, but you have the option now in the infinite field of potential that is here and now to be anything or to do anything that you want. And you can go down a path that you want to because you can, but not no longer because you have to in order to feel whole and complete. And I think that is an, a tough, tougher thing when you first sort of wake up is like, I don't have to do anything anymore. There's nothing that I should necessarily or shouldn't necessarily do. It's like, what the fuck do I do? Like, I know I'm whole and complete and doing that thing isn't going to make me more whole and complete and not doing that thing isn't going to be less, make me less whole and complete. So it's like, it's like a different, it's a different sort of path, like a different sort of train track almost. It's like a totally different thing. And it, it takes learning. It's like, you know, when you were a child, when you were a newborn baby, like you didn't figure everything out that you knew immediately. Like you didn't know how to walk till you were at least, I don't know, a year and a half. I don't know when babies learn to walk, like one or two years old or so somewhere around then, like you didn't learn that stuff overnight. You didn't just wake up and knew, like come out of the womb and know how to walk, know how to talk, know how to interact with people. All of these things were learned. And yet you think you're going to jump onto this different train track that you've never experienced before and think you just know exactly how to, how to handle it. It's like, no, you're basically a newborn baby. And as I'm saying this, I'm like talking to myself, I'm like realizing it for myself. Like I have these expectations of, of thinking that I should know how to, how to manage all of this. And it's like, it hasn't, it's been turbulent. I've said that many times. And so it's almost like give yourself some grace, like, and, and I don't know, take time to pat yourself on the back here and there for not running back immediately to that other track, because there are times where it is going to feel more appealing to have the, the false certainty that comes with that other set of train tracks. But the reality is that the more times you see that opportunity and you don't run for it, the stronger you're going to get, the more faith you're going to build in yourself. And before you know it, you're going to be flying and, and it's going to get easier to, to handle. But again, you know, a baby doesn't learn how to walk and talk overnight and neither will you. It's such an interesting process, right? Like, so if I stop thinking about my past, then I can just go whichever way I want. It's like, yes and no, because the process of letting go of your past as your self-definition means also letting go of your preferences, which were based on your past, which was based on your self-definitions. And so the things that you're going to choose to do are going to change the more you let go of your identity and your past, because now you're not trying to stick to the familiar. So what I mean is that if I were to walk into my kitchen right now, there are lots of different options for food. If I was to identify with my past, I would probably gravitate towards things that are familiar to me from my past that I know I'm going to like, I know I'm going to meet my preferences. I know I'm going to you know, match up to the person I think I am. Whereas if I walk into that kitchen without any of that identity, without any assumption that what I've done in the past dictates what's best for me in the future, then I'm going to look around in curiosity and enthusiasm. I might find something I've never eaten before and eat that and try it and see what the experience is. But that's the process is getting out of your way to the point where those new doorways, those new opportunities don't seem so uncomfortable 
you're not immediately gravitating towards the familiar because the root of that familiar, the, the idea of yourself that makes the familiar so addictive is starting to pull away, starting to get, to get taken out of the, the equation. And that's what allows you to search down different paths. That's what allows you to see what your potential is. So it's all part of the same goddamn process. And as Andrew said, it's just ongoing. You just keep getting into the mix. You just keep finding your way. There really is no better way to explain this, except that as long as you keep in mind certain things, and, and we go through this all the time. Uh, this is why I made Discover Transcendence was, you know, here's some three things to keep in mind that your brain is trying to be effective by being habitual. It's trying to do things it knows works. It's trying to figure out who you are and where you live, which is why you identi identify where, what's your value in this world. And it's doing that to try and keep you alive, right? It's doing that because it's trying to help you survive in the world. It doesn't understand that by trying to find a repetitive groove that it's actually making it more difficult for you to grow, right? And so the more you can question that groove, the easier it is to find new directions. Yeah, I think uh, a very helpful recognition when you're talking about like going into the kitchen and, and your old habits and patterns is a lot of people think we're like, get confused that the past dictates the present, like everything leading up to right now dictated what you do right now. And like, you're kind of like a, a slave to your past and all of that. But the reality is that the present dictates the past, similar to Alan Watts uses the analogy, like you're a boat and the past is the wake. The wake does not dictate where the boat goes right now. The boat, the, the wake is, is a, recognition of where the boat has been but has nothing to do with where the boat goes next and yeah with the uh with the brain being habitual that reminded me uh the other day i was walking i just started thinking about how i don't have to think about how to walk like it's so it's such a natural pattern like it's it's fascinating that it's such a complex sort of i it's not that complex but it's like a, it's something that is pretty fascinating that we don't have to think about at all. And I started to think about just how our thought patterns are become very habitual. And yeah, I guess you bring it up that you talked about this and discover transcendence. So that was probably where the seed of this thought came from because I've watched it like five times, but the, uh, it was interesting because I started to think about how, if you have certain thought patterns that don't go unchecked, like it's going to become habitual and it's just where you go naturally because your brain is always trying to be more efficient and and be able to put things in the background almost so if you you have certain thought patterns that you don't you know check every once in a while and all these thoughts and I've talked about how I had some about myself that were very limiting and, and ideas of what I thought I was as being like a, not a very good speaker not very articulate not very confident and then was able to recognize by happenstance one day that like none of that was actually true. It sort of was the final seed I needed to start creating content. So it was a, that was a great day, but it's interesting that we have all of these ideas and they come back to the idea of yourself and what you think you are. So now that I recognize that I'm not never what I think I am, it's a lot easier to check those thought patterns, but you know, I had those in my head for probably since, my ego started developing when I was, you know, preteen and stuff to I was 24 years old and, and they go unchecked and they kind of 
mold your experience until you check them and question them and then are able to put yourself in situations where you can prove them wrong. And then it starts building in the other direction as like, oh, I'm not this, this idea that I always thought I was. I, I have the opportunity to be, to be anything and I'm no longer limited to these habitual thought patterns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which it goes back to the question of how do you guys let go of a story? And then in that state of uncertainty, just take a next move. And there is no how. That's the thing, right? We're always looking for the how do I do that? There's no how, just do, right? Like it, it, this is why I enjoy the word enthusiasm. Right? Enthusiasm is its own reward. It is its own motivating factor, right? If you're feeling enthusiastic, you're doing right? Curiosity is also pretty good, but I like enthusiasm because of the etymology, which is anentheos, to be possessed by God, right? So when you're enthusiastic, you are a reality in motion, right? But that enthusiasm isn't ego-based, right? It's based on, on the experience you're having. It is its own point. And so if you can practice enthusiasm, which is usually just a result of relaxing, just getting out of your own way, and then you'll feel enthusiastic. The more you relax, the easier it is to find things to be enthusiastic about. Yeah, on my walk this morning, I walked past like a schoolyard. It was probably elementary school. There was a bunch of, I don't know, maybe eight years old, just like all running around playing. I was just like, holy shit, it's so funny. Like that was, that's enthusiasm. They were just doing there. There was no, they have no idea anything about, you know, money or status or societal expectations or anything and they're just running around like playing tag messing with each other and it's so it's it's just fascinating to see how children just sort of get it and we we forget or at least <clears throat> it gets beaten out of us that you know you can't act like that you need to start adulting and, and do adult things and and start making money and get a job and, and all that shit. So it's, it's interesting seeing children in that way and then being able to sort of recognize how they, they've got more probably correct than majority, if not almost all adults. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesus saying it'd be like a child, right? Like that's, he's not saying, you know, run around and act like a kid. He's, he's talking about the, the innocence or, or rather the, uh, focus on, on where you are, the presence, the lack of identity that goes into evaluating each and everything you do in your life, right? Like, that's the thing when we're talking about adulting or getting older, we're really just talking about getting a sense of control, fitting into your place in the world, you know, and, and, and finding a group until you die. That's pretty much it. Whereas kids don't think that way. Kids are like, what, what kingdom can I conquer tomorrow? Right? What can, what, am I, what wonderful journey can I come up with, you know, this afternoon? that's it it's not because you know oh what will somebody think of that journey and can i sell that in a book and make millions like they don't worry about any of that because the the, the journey itself was the point which is what we're missing at the end of the day the journey itself is the point being alive is the point somebody asked me this the other day and i often get this question in terms of creation you know god created everything and i'm like well, you know there's no creator because it's not intelligently created it's intelligence manifest there's no time. So nobody created this. It's, it's always. And it's like, oh, so what's the point of all this? And I'm like, that's the funniest question. Why does existence need a point? Where are you trying to go? Is existing not enough? 
Yeah, that is a that's what I I guess probably one of the deepest existential questions that people ask, but everyone gets so caught up in thinking like, you know, what's the meaning of life? Like, what's what's the point of all this? And it's like the point is the point is now. The point is whatever. What are you doing right now? That's it. Like, there's there isn't anywhere to get. There's nowhere to go. There, like, it's fascinating how we have this whole beautiful earth and all this cool shit that we can do for and a lot of them are free like a lot of the coolest stuff we can do and the most fascinating things we can experience and view don't cost don't actually cost money and yet we're still caught up in thinking like there must be something deeper to this like there must be something some meaning to all of this like what what's the point what it's like really this isn't enough like it's crazy how and i don't know maybe more people just have to try out mushrooms and they'll see <laughs> but uh it's it, obviously it doesn't take mushrooms to recognize that but it they they help it doesn't hurt it. yeah absolutely so yeah it's always interesting to, to hear people talk about like you know what is the meaning of life like i, I just want to figure it out it's like every moment that you spend trying to figure out the meaning of life, you're missing the meaning of life. Yeah. Like just, just take in how complex the experience you're having at this specific moment is all of the cells in your body, all of them doing different things, all of them having different purposes, joining and forming different organs, joining and forming and to build your entire body. Not only that, but the process of that body, the fact that the air around you is influencing it, all of the things that came before, everything in your environment is connected. If that's not enough to have you sitting drooling in awe with how much is happening, then you're just not paying attention. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Okay, so I've got one for, for you, Andrew, and this is probably one of my favorite questions so far. I've already answered it, but I'm curious to get your answer. What do you see when you look in a mirror? I did see, I did see this on Discord. Yeah, I did see your answer too. But uh, yeah, I see a reflection of a human with the name of Andrew, I think, is, is what it comes down to for me like that's what first comes to mind it's like this i recognize that this is my experience and this human has a name but it was just what it was given so there isn't a and it's not to say that it doesn't come up this deeper sort of identity with andrew but it is very much like i am seeing a, a being that is me along with everything else in the mirror as well and the mirror also but yeah so I think when it comes to like my experience it's it's that I I fully I think the name for whatever reason the whole idea with the name and I can thank Celeste for for that insight for sure um, but yeah, that has stuck with me. The idea that none of us inherently have names and that helps a lot with the recognition that I am not, you know, this idea, because I think it's sort of like our name is the sort of root of the story and the idea about ourselves that we tell ourselves. And if you can kind of snip the name and recognize that you're not actually the name, like you have a name, you're given 
a name or this grouping of cells was given a name, but it's not what you actually are. It doesn't mean that you can't identify as it and there aren't good reasons to identify as it because that would be a fucking pain in the ass to everyone in your life. If you just stopped identifying as your name and you're like, no, I am, I am Jack now or I don't know, whatever. That's just very inconvenient for everyone else. And people would probably get super annoyed, but you can still recognize that it's not the truth of what you are. So long story short, when I look in the mirror, I see a human being that's been named Andrew, but it isn't the truth of what I am. And I'm able to recognize that. Nicely said. That's nicely said. And of course this has some implication in, in terms of uh, trans identity, right? Like if my value doesn't change according to how I label myself or how I identify, then I'm inevitably going to end up running across the same problem eventually, right? And, and that that is a problem, right? This is something that that I don't, envy somebody going through that experience because while your identity isn't important and yeah, you can choose anyone you want by all means, you know, choose whatever one you want. If you want to call yourself this or that, if you want to look at yourself this way or that, do that, but don't commit to it as the source of value, as a source of certainty or the source of who you are. Just, just look at it as who you want to, to embody who you want to be today, not who you actually are. Because otherwise, you're always going to be trying to, to get everybody else to, to recognize that person. You're always going to have everybody else, you know, you're going to be resentful that other people aren't recognizing the changes that you feel are right for you. They're so caught up in themselves, they probably can't recognize those changes. This is something that's so important to, rec to, to notice is that, like, there's a problem in terms of dead naming for a trans person who has changed their name change their gender, change their persona, and then somebody who used to know them will come up and use their old name. And that will immediately create feelings of shame. It will immediately create the feeling that they're being invalidated, that this person doesn't respect them. And while I understand that, a lot of that feeling comes down to how much that person is relying on that identity for a source of value, for a source of who they are. Right? And when you are relying on identity for that source of value, for that source, that source of, of certainty and self-love, somebody else not validating it is huge and crushing. And that's the danger. And if you were to recognize it doesn't matter which name you choose, doesn't matter which persona you choose or how you dress, wouldn't, you wouldn't care if somebody used your old name because that's not you regardless. Neither is your new one. All right. So I just wanted to bring that up quickly because what you were saying there is something that's happening quite frequently now that people are in fact deciding, this isn't me, that's me. Uh, but it's not, it's not. You can, you can play that role, but as soon as you convince yourself that's who you really are, then you're right back in the same cycle of suffer and lack and resent and ex expectation and frustration. And it just keeps going in circles. Um, do you think with that recognition, it's like a part of them is recognizing that they're not what they think they are? And then because our society is so rooted in identity, they're like, I'm not this. So therefore, but I have to be something. So I'm, so I'm this. So do you think there's a, there's like a seed of that recognition of not, of, of being that universal awareness, but because we're in such a identity driven society, it's like, it just hops to another identity. It's just of. like somebody leaving Christianity and moving into new age. It's the same 
temptation to identify, right? Whereas, you know, like I, I I'm a big fan of, of the non-binary movement and, and I enjoy the, the idea of using they, them to some degree because it's right in the middle, right? And to me, that's more progressive. I'm redefining this concept that everybody's got an idea about, right? Rather than changing me to fit another concept, I'm changing the concept. To me, that makes more sense than just changing my identity. I might as well destroy all of the assumptions about that identity. That's equality. So that way nobody has to call themselves anything. They can just be what they are. Yeah, I like it. Getting closer to the point with that. We'll see how long it takes, but I don't know. Part part of us is moving in the right direction, I think, with, with all of that stuff. So. It's all process, right? It's all process. It's all part of our incredibly vast changing mind. This, this great awakening that we have the potential to take advantage of. Or as we were just saying, it's so easy to get caught back up in, in the old mentality. Even when we make little bits of progress, it's almost it, all of a sudden it's like identity is right there again saying, no, look, old faithful right? I'm here for you. And it's like, yeah, identity, forgot about you. And then we end up back in the same trap. And then we find ourselves disillusioned and suffering. And then we question our identity again. Maybe we move, maybe we change jobs, maybe we do all of that. And, and then we feel better again until we start to resort to identity and it starts to set into stone again. And then again, we're trapped. It's this weird cycle between freedom and prison, right? Like it really is. It's that, but it's entirely up to us whether we're free or imprisoned by our own illusions. It's, it's the most interesting journey. This is why I always say that there isn't a single insight that I will ever share with anybody that will have any power that they don't immediately use themselves. Like they have to be the source of their insight. I can talk till I'm blue in the face, it won't make a difference. But if the person I'm talking to actually wants to use what I'm saying and, and turn it into whatever lesson they can turn it into, they're gonna grow, but it has to be self-driven. That's it. It's just the will, the will to question yourself, the will to feel uncertain, the will to see what else is there other than the suffering that you're so familiar with. Yeah. That false sense of certainty will, will get you. And yeah, it's, it's not the easiest mentality to break out of, but it's almost like we don't even see the alternative than just having a false sense of certainty about anything and everything we come across. It's like, you know, it's actually okay to be uncertain about everything, quite frankly, about who you are, because that may lead to more freedom than you've ever experienced in your entire life. Absolutely. Now, this leads me to another question. I wanted to get to this one because it's involved and it's a good question. Do you think that it's possible through a shared dialogue uh, by dialogue means language, culture, norms, memes, just the overall mode of being. Do you think that it's possible that we can create a dream, so to speak, or a shared experience where each dreamer, each version of us, can soberly recognize our inherent oneness from the moment we become aware of ourselves? In other words, we become aware of ourselves around like three to five years old. Is there a way for us to skip all of this toxic ego development? Would there be a society that we could make where that toxic ego, ego development doesn't necessarily have to, to go on for as long, isn't so entrapping, isn't so familiar, and it's something that maybe society would be aware of around us. Like, is it, is it possible for us to, to create that kind of world? And I just want to say from the start, because we've talked about this in numerous episodes, that is what's happening. 
like th this is the progress the, the process that we're going through right now this is this conversation because as each of us each of us finds our own freedom we affect everybody differently give that enough time the entire world changes suddenly children are being raised in a society where the adults around them aren't abusing them just to try and deal with their own security. The, the, uh, the adults around them aren't making them choose, like, what do you want to be for the rest of your life, Timmy? I know you're only 12. Like, we're not doing all of that stuff. We're actually allowing people to grow organically because the people around them are growing organically. We could return to a way of life that we actually have some alignment with reality. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely do, do believe that. And this person refers to it as, as returning to the garden, which I think is perfectly apt. Yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting. And I think we can get, and I initially got caught up in when you were just saying that and like the concept of this world, you know, beginning and we're, you know, X amount of years in to it. But the reality is that it's begins now. It begins every moment. Like it's a, it's a new world, new existence than it was when this podcast started. So it's not about like restarting and like starting from zero or starting from, you know, back to single cell organisms. Like it's always restarting. It's every single moment is a new start. So it's, it's that process of recognizing that it's happening now. It's always happening now. And all it is even asking a question like that is informing the process and and us talking about this is informing the process so it's when you recognize eternity there is no starting and ending and restarting and do-overs and it's like every moment is the opportunity for a quote-unquote do-over so it's not something that you have to think about in a way of of restarting everything and everyone getting their minds wiped clean it's like as we begin to question the certainty, the false sense of certainty that we have about everything, we our minds do start to get sort of rewired or reset in a way. And as my mind gets reset and rewired, my mind gets reset and rewired. My mind as the singular awareness of existence here and now that I am. So... Yeah, I think absolutely. And it's happening every, every single moment. It's happening now. That was well said. And it's funny because it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how the present dictates the past. And what I loved about that, because when I watched that video you made, that, that you made, it reminded me of something that even in my own lifetime, when I was going through my hell, it was because of my perception of my past, right? So my current being changed the effect that my past was having on me. I was looking at my past as being the reason I was the way I was. Now I'm in a different state of mind. I don't identify with my past. I don't identify with those limitations. I'm not feeling as insecure because of that identity and all that stuff. And now I can look at my past and it's nothing but growth. Whereas before it was nothing but resent. And it's because my current state makes my past more useful. And so if we can find that mentality now, and we can make all of humanity's past useful. We can learn from it. We can change the now in a meaningful way. 
right? But so long as we're looking at the past through the lens of ego, through the lens of preference and judgment and all that other fun stuff, then the past is nothing more than a, a trail of blood and misery, right? Whereas if you change your relationship with the present, then humanity's past becomes signs of progress, however slow that might be. Yeah, it's funny when the mentality and, and your mentality starts to shift how you're able to look at the past as not this terrible thing and, and not this thing that even you overcame in like a negative way. It's, it's like a, a thing that you can reach back for if, for example, like how I see it is with one-on-ones, like there are certain times where, where someone will come to me with a situation they're in and I'm able to reach back into my own past and empathize with them because I can feel through my experience, through my past experiences, what that was like. Because even though right now I may not experience that type of situation as often I have in the past. And so you're able to utilize those memories and experiences in a sort of beneficial or, or yeah, beneficial way in order to help the person I'm talking to as myself learn from my own past, which is also their own past if they know it or not. But yeah, so I think being able to see your past as rather than something that you avoid and, and you like when, when memories start coming up, you start like suppressing them because you're able to see that it's not actually you, like there's not the identity tied to those memories anymore. It's like sort of a toolbox that you can reach into and allow yourself to empathize with someone maybe going through a similar situation or even yourself in a similar situation and how you, you know, learned from it as opposed to something you try to avoid at all costs. Yeah. And, and again, our, our commitment to identity, our commitment to our idea of ourself makes it more difficult for us to use the past in those situations. And I'll, I'll use an example, actually, just from last week's uh, Patreon group chat. One of our, our supporters was asking a question regarding her relationship with uh, her child. And my past in terms of abandonment and not having uh, a family and support and all of that, if I was still identifying with my past, I would have looked at her situation through my lens, through my pain, through the things that I went through. And the answer that I would have given her would have reflected my pain. It would have been my answer. And it was my ability to separate all of that, to look at that pain as something that helped me grow, to remove the identity that made me resent those things that I went through, that allowed me to put that aside and see where she was coming from and to actually use my pain to communicate an insight that would help from her perspective. So rather than giving her my answer, I allowed myself to present her answer. But it couldn't have happened if I was still identifying with my past, if I was still having opinions on everything that I'd been through and what I thought it made me into. And so it's so very important to, re to recognize that, you know, the way you view your past is often still based on the way that you're limiting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine uh, that's uh, obviously hugely beneficial. And, and it just comes back to that idea of how you, how you identify and or lack thereof. Yeah. All right. Next question. This one's yours. This is going very well. Is, yeah. I love these episodes. Me too. This one's kind of interesting. Um, how can I stop getting offended so easily? 
That's a great question. Um, so a big part of it to me is recognizing that the things I'm most offended by are the things I probably know have some degree of truth. <laughs> um, so when somebody says to me, you're really inconsiderate, and I get offended by that, it's typically because I don't want to look at the fact that I have the ability to be inconsiderate. And then when I recognize and I admit, you're right, I do have the ability to be inconsiderate. Suddenly I can recognize where I've been inconsiderate. But until I recognize or I have the ability to at least deal with the fact that I have the ability to be inconsiderate, I'm not even willing to look at it. And it's because it'll tear me down. It'll tear down my ego. It'll make me feel like less of a person, right? And so a big part of not getting offended is recognizing that you have every ability in the world to be an absolute ass. And that doesn't make you less of a person. It does give you options. You know, something I say to my daughter often is that the best way to avoid doing certain things is to recognize that you have the ability to do them, right? Like the best way to not lie to people is to recognize that you have the ability to lie to people because then you'll at least treat it with a little bit more care and caution, right? Whereas if you tell yourself, oh, I couldn't possibly do that, you'll do it all the time and you convince yourself that you're not. Oof. Yeah, that is, yeah, it's fascinating when, when it's something that <clears throat> we, are identified with and and there is some truth it's so funny how often people will get triggered when there's you know at least a little bit of truth in a statement because if you think about if someone were to call someone else you know uh, mean or an asshole it's like you don't have a reaction to that because it has nothing to do with you and if you recognize that you're not an asshole and then someone calls you an asshole, you probably won't have a very visceral reaction. But if there is an ounce of that, because everyone's been an asshole at some point. So if someone calls you an asshole, you'll probably have some little bit of reaction because there's something there, but being able to, as we sort of talked here, have that clarity around the recognition that, you know, you have been, an asshole before and, and you have the ability to be an asshole. So if someone is saying something to you, it's, it's like, you don't have to viscerally react, but if you recognize that it's something within your, the infinite potential that you could possibly be, then you can try and figure out maybe where they're coming from. And, and maybe it's not something you even recognize in the moment, but you're able to sort of learn from it. So yeah, it is interesting though, how when someone gets offended by something, it's probably because they know there's some truth to it. And they need it not to be right. That's, that's the thing, right? Like I, I need to not see myself that way. So I'm defending myself. We say it's offensive and then that's kind of a clue, right? Like I'm attacking you to avoid looking at it. That's what it is. I'm, I'm on the offense, right? And, and again, that, that makes sense to some degree when you're easily shaken. The more you start to question your, ident your identity, the less shaken you are. Um, admittedly, I've said this before, that I am the most likely of all my friends to lovingly be called an asshole because I'm an asshole. I say things in a dickish way because to me, that's my sense of humor. I pick on people constantly. I'm just like that. That's the kind of person I am. And anybody who knows me, they know it's coming from a place where it's just like, I'm just filling time. I'm just having fun. Right. But I've offended people. And then other people have kind of went to them and go, 
you really should go talk to Ray. Like, he's not like you're saying he is. And then they'll come talk to me and within five minutes, everything's just fine because I'm harmless, right? Because I don't mean any of it at the end of the day. And if you know me well enough, then you know that. And if you don't know me well enough and you get offended, come talk to me. And I'm more than happy to explain it to you. But people who call me asshole, I'll smile and go, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> right? Like, because at least I'm willing to, to come to terms with it. And because of that, I can, I can have fun with it. Because of that, I'm also more cautious about it. Like I'm rec I recognize that I have the ability to be an asshole. And so I use it sparingly and in humor as much as I can. But, you know, as Andrew mentioned a couple of weeks back, my tone changes when I'm dealing with bullshit, right? And, and that's very much the point. Like, it's not that I turn into an asshole, but I, I get very cutthroat. I, I become very direct in general. And, and so I know that too. And I keep that in mind when I talk to people, even when I get to that point, like I, I'm aware that I can get to the point where I'm almost callous. And because I'm aware of it, because I don't deny it, because I recognize where it comes from and that it was my ability, it was how I managed to kind of get through that part where I was falling back into my old habits. I can soften it a bit when I'm talking to other people. But if I denied it entirely, everybody would get the worst side of me. Yeah, I'm glad you're able to, you, you recognize it for, for my sake too, given how much we communicate. <laughs> but yeah, the, the recognition that uh, we talked about this a couple episodes ago, but how if you ask someone like, do you think you're a good person? And they say yes, it's like, that's very alarming because there is no such thing as good people. So being able to recognize that you can be an asshole, you can kind of be a piece of shit in certain situations, like you can have a little bit less seriousness with it almost like there isn't this rigidity to needing to act a certain way because you have this idea of yourself and it just comes back to having an idea of yourself and when there isn't an idea of yourself there aren't these labels like yeah i i could be anything because i'm not anything inherently so it's it's fun to recognize that and there's just a lot more room to work and, and almost like space to exist as opposed to being confined into this packaged up box of, you know, whatever you think you are, or other people think you are, because you know that you're never what you think you are and you're never what other people think you are. So, but within that you could be anything and you have the potential to be anything, including an asshole or a piece of shit. So Absolutely. And you might as well embrace it, right? Like the, the sooner you embrace your inner asshole, the sooner that asshole will start to heal. Right. That's the whole point. Right. So uh, I have another question for you. And this one's kind of tongue in cheek and fun. Um, of course, it's from one of our supporters on Discord and Patreon. Have you ever considered starting to refer to yourself in the third person? Uh, I mean, I have before like in making videos but there's just such a general consensus that you're like a conceited piece of shit if you res uh, yeah, refer to yourself in the third person that i avoid it for that reason given how people typically react it's usually not worth it but it is interesting when you start to recognize that you're not what you think you are and there's like kind of two sides of that. You can have some fun and, and be like, oh yeah, Andrew was, was being, you know, being a dick today or whatever, or, but at the same time, 
there is that identification out of convenience and it's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with identifying as Andrew or as Ray, but there is some fun to be had when you recognize that you're not what you think you are to refer in the third person. But usually I avoid it just because you sound like kind of an ass when you say it, like anyone who refers to themselves in the third person is, it's very interesting, but yeah. Ray agrees for sure. <laughs> it's just, it's so interesting because from my perspective, it's already hard enough to track whether I'm the objective or the subjective. Like it's very difficult to tell the difference between whether I'm reality watching Ray or Ray watching reality. And so I don't want to start referring to Ray in that way because it's it's confusing for one, for me and everybody else. And, and two, it's a lot more effort as a whole. But yeah, it creates this, this kind of barrier between like me and my character, which is dangerous in terms of irresponsibility, right? Like all of a sudden you can be like, Ray did this today. I know that's not me. And this is actually something I wanted to bring up because we we had uh, Suzanne on, on uh, earlier in the season and she was talking about non-duality. And I've spent some more time looking into this non-duality movement that's happening because I never learned about any of this as non-duality. Like when I was going through all this stuff, duality was just something came into my head because I knew the word and the yin yang just resonated like super hard. And so it was like duality, cool. That makes sense. Everything is dualistic. And I could see that clear as day. But then you have these non-dual teachers, which immediately makes me suspicious because a non-dual teacher can't exist. If you're a teacher, there's a student, there's duality again. But the, the, the point being is that they take it to this extreme where it's a philosophy and, and it's this idea of you rather than the experience of you. And I find that there's so little in the way of empathy there and in, in, in little in the way of responsibility there. And this is something that we had talked to Suzanne about um, in terms of, well, how does this play out when you're talking to other people? Oh, yeah, I just talk about, you know, what they want to talk about. I do small talk. And it's like, so none of this is coming through in who you are. You're still just, you know, going through the normal rhetoric or the normal conversations with everybody else until you can have this specific dialogue. And that, that, seems like it misses the point because now it's about non-duality as a subject rather than the recognition of duality, right? It becomes the memorization of, of certain phrases, the, memorizations of, the memorization of certain uh, concepts like um, energetic contractions, things like that. But none of it's genuinely affecting you as the person. It's just more of a coat to put on. It's another layer. It's another layer that you're putting on and saying doesn't exist, right? So it becomes this, this weird contradiction. There is no meanness. Well, who's saying that? Well, I am. So there's obviously a meanness, despite the fact that that meanness isn't divided. Like it, it's almost a way of oversimplifying this. Right. There is no meanness. It's like, yeah, there is on every level of complexity. Each and every cell in your body has its own meanness. And you're the combination of all of them. So as much as there's no meanness, there's a vast meanness and it is complex as shit. And to ignore that is, is just it seems like we're just trying to make it so it's simple enough that we can talk to other people and feel special about ourselves without actually abandoning the identity that we use in our day-to-day -day dialogue without actually changing as people. 
Yeah, when you say menus fast enough, it almost starts to sound like penis a little bit. Kind of or weenus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a lot of disassociation that can come with that. I found it so interesting, especially when we brought up the idea of communicating with other people, how we kind of, when we say that we kind of make jokes or put quotes around like other people, cause there are no other people, but for her, there, there is, there very much is. And that is clearly just shows everything I need to know about her belief system that she's been clinging to is that she sees herself as, you know, nothing, everythinging, but she doesn't see anyone else as nothing, everythinging. And if she is nothing, everythinging, then everything is everythinging, nothing, everythinging, whatever you want to say. But so if, if you're still seeing other people not really clearly seeing that like if you recognize it most of the time you'll be like yeah you know other people like there aren't actually in reality but yeah so when you say something like what about with other people and they respond not that you have to always make a joke about it whenever you say other people but yeah i just i just found that specific point to be very interesting and and yeah it's just a sort of like a disconnection from your experience here and now and, and very much a disassociation. And there's a lot of, and we've talked to people who have followed that sort of messaging and it, it can get depressing very quickly because there's, there's almost a avoidance or a denial of your experience here and now with that disassociation and with that separation. It's like there's more separation than most people have in their day-to-day lives who've never even heard of non-duality, which is kind of ironic. Yeah, but then it becomes a school of thought, right? Which means that now it's something that you have to study, something that you have to, to you know, memorize and know in order to get to that state of mind. This is something that uh, when we were talking to John recently in one of our, our uh, recent episodes, we were talking to John and he was mentioning that one of these non-dual teachers was saying that you know their desk is as intimate to them as their body. And that's great, that's fantastic, but it builds this entire idea that you have to understand non-duality to get to that point, when the fact is you just need to abandon your idea of yourself. The more you abandon the idea of division, the more you abandon identity, the more you start to recognize that you are reality. You are the desk. The desk doesn't exist without you there, right? Like the whole thing is you. You and everything you're observing, it's all you. That's not something you need to memorize. That's something you, uh, you relax into. It's something you find through faith and humility. But if it's, an, if it's a concept, if it's a school of thought, then there will always be a teacher, a knower, and the one who doesn't know. And in that, there's a lack of empathy. There's a lack of relation, right? Which is why in this podcast, we are never teaching people, even in our workshops. Our workshops are so carefully created to be just running dialogues there's no class happening here there's nothing you need to memorize hell if you're memorizing something stop that if you're writing this down throw that pen away you are everything you need just relax and everything will start to unfold that's what this is about but as soon as it becomes serious as soon as it becomes a a ceremony a religion a structure something that you have to memorize and and learn about it it loses its whole purpose it becomes another journey and you don't need a journey you are whole you are reality yeah there's so much freedom 
in that recognition that it doesn't have to be serious because so many things in our society and in our experience are serious and they're very structured and you have to prepare very well. And, and it's like, there's so little ability to flow with things. And I found that even in, like, I've, I've been having to give like presentations and trainings for work. And I, I have to follow structure because there are actually specific topics I have to train these people on, but I find I'm able to incorporate more of this mentality into it. And because I'm not so hyper concerned with, you know, my performance in the training. It's like, I know this stuff. I know they're going to learn stuff, but I'm able to structure it in a way where I, I have sort of like slides ready to go and talk about, but I, I don't practice as much as I used to. I used to go through it. So I was basically memorized and there was a lot of just nerves and fear leading up to it. And now I, I don't, and it's just very much more dialogue. And I find that people are more willing to ask questions because there is more flow to it. And so it's like, everyone's benefiting. And it's not that I'm necessarily better at what I'm doing. I'm just have less expectation of what I'm doing. And there's like something, there is something that's being followed in a structure, but there's just less weight to it. So I found that to be the case in, in my own life and stuff, which has been, which has been awesome too. But yeah, like in our workshops, even just like in our podcast, it's, there isn't, there isn't preparation. Like we have the questions ready and, and whatnot for the workshops. Like we have a topic, but like, that's the extent for the podcast. Sometimes I'll, I'll write down some things. If I go through throughout the week, like, Oh, I want to touch on these couple things. And just because I want to remember to talk about them, but it's not that there's this, necessary, like, oh, we have to talk about this, this, this. It's like, if it flows with the conversation, I'll, I'll bring this up. Or if there's, you know, we finish on one topic, I'll bring this up, but it's not like I need to do this. We need to follow this X, Y, Z. So yeah, there's just so much freedom in that recognition. Yeah. And you don't ever have to worry about missing something. That's the lovely part, right? Like you don't ever have to go, oh, Maybe they shared something I should I should have known. You'll find it. Then you don't worry about it. It's there. Just keep going. You'll eventually come across that. And, and then that's very much what we're trying to get across is that it's not just about the information. It's not just about what you know. It's about how it changes you. It's about how it is in motion. It's like we used to talk about in Wing Chun, right? Because in Wing Chun, we learned certain hand positions. And in those hand positions, we're taught like, this is Bong Sao, this is Tad Da, right? But then as you start to learn those hand positions and your Sifu will come up and say, actually, that's not Wing Chun. Wing Chun isn't this position or this position, it's how this position turns into this position. It's in the motion that you're actually, that, that, that you're finding Wing Chun, you're finding your martial art. It's not in, this, in the set positions and that's the same thing with life. It's not about a specific concept. It's about how you can adapt that concept to find fluidity and alignment, right? Alignment is the point. And alignment is something that is better communicated through being aligned than just talking about alignment. Right? It's not something that you can memorize conceptually. It's something that is communicated through us witnessing our, our unity unfolding. That's really all it is. So on that note, I have a slightly, different, uh, slightly deeper question for you. 
what is this thing that creates infinite futures? Does it technically start within us? But based on what? Our desires? Like, we want this or that, so we go forth through an infinite pathway to a destination? But where did those desires come from? Like, I like, or um, I didn't choose to like making music, but I just do. So where is the choice there? If it feels good to do it, I didn't choose for that to feel good. Am I, am I, uh, I am just following the feel good feeling, so to speak. So it's almost like feeling good is our big picture self's way of getting us to do what it wants us to do for its bigger desire. So basically, all of that simplified. <laughs> the first question is, where do all the infinite possibilities come from? The second question is, how do we choose them? I would like to tackle the second part first, which is, how do we choose our possibilities? And I'm going to leave that one to you. All right. Well, I think we kind of touched on this before, but it comes down to there is no how you just do, and it doesn't really matter what you choose because it just is like, there is no right or wrong choice to be made. There is just what is happening and there is no separation between you and the choice and the happening and the future of that choice. So how do we choose? Is it based on pleasure? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not going to deny, like, we can't deny that we're humans. Like we do have innate instincts, I guess that we tend to follow based on habitual patterns a really of good question, right? like evolution. Is it, are we just trying to survive? And if it's not just survival, then are we trying to pursue pleasure? And if we're not trying to pursue pleasure, why would we do this thing that's not pleasurable, right? It's a really complex question. Yeah, yeah I think, so with that, I guess, because we have the wherewithal to because we have a mind and we are able to think about the future and the past, we are able to make more informed decisions, which is a, uh, I'm not going to say good, but beneficial thing for our progression and evolution. But I think we get caught up in it and it becomes this very detrimental thing because we're always here and now, but when you're able to recognize that and able to recognize that you're not what you think you are, you're able to take and utilize this incredibly fascinating complex tool that is your mind to use for yourself. Like you're able to use it in a beneficial way as opposed to it being the detriment of your entire existence. So I think we are able to make better decisions than like a very, just like our animalistic tendencies, because for example, even though, so like maybe our, <laughs> to get, bring it into procreation and, and sex, like we have instincts as to procreate in certain ways, but we know 
that we maybe don't want to have 15 children. So we can make an informed decision to use contraceptive devices. And that is through our mind. If we didn't have such a well-developed mind, we may not be able to think that far in the future. And if we were only in the moment, we would be, you know, more like dogs or, you know, lions or any, any animal that just procreates because it doesn't think about any other reason not to, it's just following its instinct. But because we are a little bit more developed in those ways, we're able to take a more holistic approach to a situation like procreating and realize, you know, there are implications, very, very expensive implications to having 15 children. So maybe that's not the best idea. So we can use something to prevent that while still following those sort of instinctual animalistic tendencies. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it would definitely be nice if we used those capacities to a little bit more of a degree, for sure. I mean, at 8 billion people, I don't necessarily think that uh, we're, we're thinking things through to the degree that we can be. Um, it's a really good question, though. Why do we do the things we do? Right. And, and I like the fact that they used music there as an example. Like I play music. It's not because I chose to. Uh, I enjoy playing music songs. I chose to. And I would disagree to some degree. I, I would say that it really depends on, on your perspective of who you are, for one. And it also comes down to, to responsibility because you could have been exposed to music and you might have enjoyed music, but the environment that you were in didn't make you feel confident, didn't make you feel safe, in which case you may have not played music despite it making you feel good. So there was a number of factors that combined to make music not only something that felt good, but that was actually something you could pursue. So that comes back down to, are you separate from reality? Is it you or is it you? The whole thing, right? And, and so when we start, we, we pursue survival. I would say that our, our biggest uh, goal is to not die, is to eat, and not be uncomfortable. And then as we start to grow up, then we start to recognize the world around us and we start to try and satisfy certain cravings that way. We pursue pleasure, we avoid pain. There's been a long conversation about how that is basically the motivating factor behind a lot of uh, the egotistical mindset is this, this pursuing of pleasure and this avoidance of pain. But that only goes to a certain point of clarity. And in clarity, we start to recognize that pleasure and pain are not the superficial concepts that we think we, and that they are, that actually pain leads to a certain degree of strength, which leads to the, uh, more opportunities for pleasure. So it's not the superficial thing that it is. And then that leads to another state of clarity where we start to realize that, okay, so if going through pain is making me stronger and I'm learning from it, I'm growing as a person, then that changes how I'm, uh, I'm affecting everybody else. And then as you start to raise your clarity, you start to realize that you are everybody else. And so now your pursuing of pleasure or your willingness to face pain isn't necessarily just for you, the individual, but for you, the whole, right? And so it, it all comes back to why do we do what we do? And I think it's because we are the embodiment of life. We are the embodiment of growth. That is why we do what we do, but that embodiment takes numerous different forms according to our level of clarity and the recognition of unity that we embody. I had a thought while you were saying that about how over time, because we, our society is so egotistical and identity driven, we almost, when we're children, we just 
play and, and do things for the sake of doing them. And now we sort of forego that immediate pleasure. Like it, there's nothing wrong with delayed gratification and that's actually super beneficial in a lot of ways. But if you look at it from like a bigger picture of like this blueprint, I bring up sometimes of going to college, getting a job, retiring, dying, like that's so much of the putting off of pleasure like for years if you think about if you're working a job that you hate for basically your entire adult life until you save up enough money to stop working when you're 60 or 65 like there there's a degree of delayed gratification that is incredibly beneficial to being able to recognize that but I think sometimes we get lost in that. And I guess maybe it's just comes back to following that blueprint and not questioning it and not wanting to, because if you don't follow that blueprint, then you're perceived as different and you're perceived as being not normal. And it's like, just shut up and get a normal job. Like stop being, stop thinking you're better than everyone and all that shit. But so, yeah, so I think there's like, absolutely a balance to be found and you know the point of life to be is to be lived so if you're there there's balance within that of you know not strictly pursuing pleasure because that oftentimes leads to much more pain so it's like the trade-off between you know experiencing degrees of pain in order to receive pleasure, I guess, in, in some way or capacity, but if you can sort of balance it where a perceived pain of something like working or needing to make money can be in itself pleasurable, or you can, that's sort of where enthusiasm is born. And so that is just something to keep in mind that I think it, it's not a black and white thing. It's like a moment to moment thing. And it's just something to be cognizant of because with that awareness comes more clarity around it and you're able to balance the two more seamlessly. And that's funny, eh? the more we oscillate between pain and then realizing the consequence to, to pursuing pleasure, the more clarity we gain. <laughs> so it's the part of the process again, right? So if you're if you're in the painful part, you know, just try and have some patience. Try not to to let your opinion of that pain become a pain on its own. Try not to let that that pain define you or or tell you that it means anything about you as a person whatsoever. And then all of a sudden you'll find a way out and you'll start pursuing pleasure. And then as that starts to take hold of you, you'll start to lose sight of everything else. You gain some tunnel vision. You'll start to get hurt, and you'll go. Oh, pursued pleasure a bit too much and back in pain. And you'll go through the cycle again, each and every time, gaining more context, each and every time, gaining more self-knowledge. It's an interesting process. What's our next question? Do you think the planets are alive? What makes, what makes something alive versus energy? That is a really good question. I would say, yes, absolutely. The planet is alive. Um, and I would refer actually just for the sake of it being interesting to a video that I shared recently on our Discord uh, about a conspiracy theory that the earth is in fact growing. That the reason the continents have split from the original Pangaea was the planet itself has been growing, coming up with more uh, water as it does so to cool 
the mantle as these uh, these plates split. Fantastic theory, of course, something that that science as a whole wouldn't want to look at because how does a planet grow itself? That's a, a huge question, right? But if you look at the planet, if you look at the fact that you know, it's kind of like Alan Watts used to say, if you leave rocks long enough in the universe, they'll start peopling, and and it's that's exactly what a planet is. I mean, it's a rock given enough time and variation that it came up with a single cell. That single cell ended up creating other cells and, and became life after enough time. So I would say that yes, planets, matter, energy itself is life, but that it's the form it takes that we call life, right? And until energy has taken a biological form that we can identify as a living being, we don't tend to think of it as life, but it's just a matter of time, really, if you think about it. Yeah, I think their question too is about other planets also. And I always find it interesting when people are like, think that there isn't like life in other places. And it's like, do you understand how big the universe even just this universe is let alone existence and to think that we're the only like progressed beings is just very fascinating and there's probably life forms that we can't even comprehend like what are your what are your thoughts on on just like other life forms like i know we've talked about this in the past and it's like there could be another planet that Andrew and Ray are called Randrew and A and Randrew is wearing a gray shirt and A is wearing a, a blue shirt. Like that is the vastness of existence, like of an unbounded reality. So to think that there aren't some other semblances of life somewhere else is I think just very closed-minded or I don't even know just like imagination yeah yeah well because think about it right like we look at ourselves and we go yeah life look at humans being you know the top of the chain as it were but the fact is is that if our planet was a little bit different if we were a little farther from the sun if the sun was a different uh if if the sun was different in terms of the radiation that it emits our entire biology would be different we would change as, as living beings in order to adapt to that environment. So our skin might be a different texture. Our bones might be more or less brittle, things like that. Like they, so on each and every planet, under each and every variation, you're looking at different combinations of, of energy that can create life. Like we look at life as being carbon-based life forms, but we don't know. And there could be silicon-based life forms out there. There could be just pure energy-based life forms out there. We don't know. What we do know is that energy given enough time and opportunity, eventually finds a way to express itself as a living form, right? And then when you look at the size of the universe, the age of the universe, and I'm not talking about the 16 billion years that we can measure through, through uh, radiation and light and all that, but existence as a whole being eternal and the universe being limitless, um, everything that could exist does somewhere in the spectrum. That's, that's, is at least as clear as I can say it, or as, as clear as I can see it. And I don't mean every variation of every little thing, because each thing has infinite variations in terms of perception. This office that I'm in could be perceived in infinite different ways, which makes it infinite different offices. Yeah, when you start getting into that stuff, it's like, 
yeah, there is no end to that. There are no bounds to the end of that conversation because there is no end and that is eternity. So yeah, to, to have some closed off idea that, you know, we are the only intelligent life as they say is just, I don't know. It's like, I, I can't imagine how that would be possible. No, but we can imagine where that belief would come from. I mean, the church yeah. dominated that belief for years. It really just comes down to self-importance, right? Like, I don't want to think that there are beings out there that might be more intelligent than me because that makes me less intelligent by comparison. And I don't like that, right? And so I'm just going to avoid that conversation and say they don't exist with complete certainty. So I don't have to have this discussion, right? And that, that's kind of the point. Um, here's another one for you. And I've been waiting to get to this one because it is deeper and it tends to go into more mm, speculation, let's just say. What are your thoughts on the supernatural? I've had some conversations with people who have had very convincing experiences with ghosts and other supernatural figures. And I would love to know what your thoughts are. So, hmm. Yeah, this this will be an interesting one. I yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there is the potential for that to be perceived. Absolutely. I think like with a lot of things, it can be can come down to perception, like to someone seeing a ghost or something and, and someone not. Um the technicality behind it i don't know i quite frankly i haven't done much digging into supernatural or ghosts it was never something that really intrigued me a ton honestly um so i just haven't dug into it too much but i absolutely think that the perception of them is possible but whether it's like another dimension I don't know. It's like, who's to say that it isn't, I guess, but yeah, I don't know. That's kind of my initial thoughts. It's, it's an interesting uh, subject because you can't discount the experiences out of hand because that's rude. Um, and, and also you weren't there. So you can't just say, no, that didn't happen. But I do know that the perception of something isn't necessarily the truth of something. Our interpretation of a thing isn't necessarily what we're interpreting. So that's very important to keep in mind. But on the other hand, as we were just saying, all life is energy. And when you remove the physical bounds, who's to say what that energy can do? Like in the last moments of your death, for example, as you're leaving your body, if you were to suddenly think back to yourself as a child, would your childhood self have a feeling of suddenly your presence being amplified? Like, would you be able to reach back through time depending on how much you were abandoning the physicality? And if so, that says something about the echoes left by ghosts who are killed in violence or who die, who die from, certain, from certain situations, right? Like that echo would be imprinted into that reality. And so anybody with the clarity or the awareness to maybe be receptive to that might feel that echo. Right. There's there's more to it than just, you know, ghosts and whatnot, because when we're talking about ghosts, we're still talking about separation. We're still talking about it like we're on a physical planet and these are ethereal beings or these are our, our ghostly apparitions. Right. Instead of thinking of it in terms of like a, a dream. 
right? Like if you were to run across a ghost in your dream, you would know that ghost is your consciousness, regardless of what form it's taken. And so your interpretation of that experience would be different. The symbolism of that experience would be different. How you reacted to that experience would be different. Um, and, and so with that, all that in mind, I think that a lot of our experiences in terms of encountering ghostly apparitions and, and, and other um, types of events are always filtered through our own fear, through our own commitment to our, our, mortal, our mortal coil, as it were, and, and to our uh, aliveness, I guess. But from my own experience, and I just want to say this because this person actually asked, have you ever had any experience? Yes. Yes, I have. I have encountered ghosts and weird shit in my past. I was a huge fan of going into abandoned warehouses and abandoned churches when I was younger. I used to love going into graveyards. I used to love everything related to, to the afterlife and whatnot. And so I went out of my way to go into creepy places. And in those, in those journeys, I ran across some things that, that you know, gave me a good scare. I remember uh, I was staying at this one hostel and the hostel itself had a history of, of being a, a location where there was a murder in the past. Anyway, so I was sleeping in this hostel, in this room by myself. And for, for the love of me, I could just feel someone in the room. I could just feel them in the room. And it was dark. And I'm like, oh, I'm just imagining I turn on the light, nobody there. It's a small room, doors closed, blah, blah, blah. Turn off the light. And just as I'm starting to fall asleep, something grabs my leg and tugs me halfway off the bed. So there have been things that I have felt that have made me go, what the hell just happened? Um, there, was an, there was something in my past where uh, a moment where I narrowly managed to avoid abuse was specifically when I had, uh, I guess, a premonition or a feeling of a loved one who had recently just passed um, in the room with me, telling me to get the hell out of the house. It was just a feeling. I could see a shadow on the wall and it reminded me of them. And it was just a feeling. And I took that advice and I got out of the house. And the next day I realized it saved my life. So again, was it that person or was it my mind using that person as the motivator to get me out the door, right? Was, it that, was that the way I needed to interpret it in order for it to serve its purpose? And so there's so much more to this conversation than just are there ghosts? Yeah, that is a good point. I haven't thought of it in that way of it's all your mind so it can manipulate a certain situation to be perceived in a certain way so in in whatever way that you need to to see it and I like sort of bringing this up with people who when they're talking about someone who's passed away and it's like well the idea of them did but they are very much still here they always have been and always will be. And everything that they, that idea of them did impact you will live on through you and through me and through everyone because they are everyone. So being able to keep that in mind, it's like, it's interesting because when you stop clinging to ideas like, you know, going to heaven and hell after you die, you start gaining more clarity into the reality of existence and are able to see that no one actually ever dies and they're all you. So it's almost like full circle to feeling better, but not through clinging to illusions. It's just recognizing reality. 
so it's, it's interesting though, how it sort of goes full circle from being like, you know, having, being able to believe in fictions, like going to the pearly gates after you die, because there is no you that is separate from anything that could go anywhere after you die. But then it's like, oh, well, there's no heaven. Then that's like so bleak and, and sad. But then it's like you come full circle to realizing, oh, you never actually die when you recognize that you're not what you think you are. Yeah. And that you can make heaven here. It's just amazing. Yeah. It, it, everything is a matter of how clear we are about how connected everything is. It really just changes our relationship. And um, normally I would pass the question over to you at this point, but I have another one and it, it is specifically in the same vein as the last one. And, and it kind of ties into the same insight. Do either one of you have any experiences with out-of-body experiences or astral travel? And what's your opinion of the practice? And this very much, in my opinion, goes back to our encounters with ghosts or apparitions or demons, demonic forces, that kind of thing. Um, because our imagination, we, we, tip, we typically say our imagination, like that sums it up. Oh, it's just my imagination. I am just able to imagine pretty much anything. And, and that's incredible when you think about it, but we, we immediately categorize it like it's make-believe. What if it's not? What if what we're talking about in terms of our imagination is our access to the infinite, to the multiverse? Maybe that's what our imagination is. Maybe our imagination is our ability to access all of the things that do possibly exist now in all variations of now. And in that, and this is why our imagination always leads to new inventions and stuff. It makes you wonder, those, do those inventions already exist in the future and our imagination is just pulling them into the past so they can exist, right? Um, but all of that in mind, if this is all my consciousness, then out-of-body experiences are not out-of-body experiences because I'm not technically in my body. I am everything. I'm just identifying as this body. And so I know from my own experience doing um, the, the gateway experience, I don't know if you've, if you've uh, had any experience with that. Hemisync, it's basically using binaural beats in order to practice removing yourself from your body and have an astral experience to actually have an out-of-body experience. I don't know if you've ever done any of that, but basically it's just meditation to the point of abandoning your body while maintaining awareness. So you're aware of yourself, but not your body self. And so what you find is that suddenly you're floating around your room or suddenly you're not in your room. Suddenly you're in a different place entirely. And you could easily say, well, that's the imagination. But then there are people who have actually practiced this to the point of being able to go somewhere and bring back a piece of information and verify that they could see that place. So again, is it imagination or are we accessing all of the infinite possibilities of what could possibly be? And is it only the level of practice that we have that allows us to, to more accurately tune into this variation as opposed to the variations that don't exist on this plane? Yeah, that reminds me of, of Lucy and, and the ability to experience everything everywhere and, and to be able to look through you know someone else's eyes because you are them and it's it brings about the question of just how limiting our perception of who we are really is and our idea of ourself because that's 
the one thing people fall back on, on being certain about what they are. Like I am Andrew. That is, I am sure of that. I know of that and taxes and death are three certainties. And it's like, well, maybe it's just taxes, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. And I've, I've been able to, I don't know, I've talked on past episodes about being able to sort of like see, like actually see someone else's perspective from that way. I think that's probably similar. I, I, I don't know about astral projection. I've never, I've been asked about that before. I, I don't think I've ever done that, but I've definitely been able to, and I can do it like when I'm walking around, like very much see myself walking. And even right now, like I can, and it's funny because we say imagination and like, yeah, I mean, it is imagination, but it's also like very clear. Like I am, I'm right now I'm seeing my, like through Ray's eyes, sort of like his computer with, me talking on his screen that's kind of tripping me out right now but it's like being able to sort of it's like yeah it's it's picturing what you think their perspective is but i don't know it, it's different than just that i feel like and like i've said i've been able to do it with my dog when i was going on walks with her just like petting her sitting near her able to see Andrew through her eyes and it's it's like too clear for it to just be like oh you're just imagining what you think it would look like and it's it's crazy so I don't know if that's similar to astral projection but it's been very interesting and uh, it just has come with less identity less certain identification of being Andrew yeah well and this is the thing right like again we summarize it like it's imaginations there's so much more to that. And I'm super curious to see how humanity explores that as we move forward, right? Because, okay, so I can just picture what my dog is looking at. Which part of my brain does that? Let's explain that scientifically, right? And it's, it's like, well, we can't because it's not something we can logically explain. All right, so I just happen to be capable of doing that. I just happen to be capable of imagining anything. Like that's that's a pretty big thing to just sweep under the rug and disregard man like it's just one of those things and so back onto that subject um the imagination or however you'd like to call it because I've, I've also talked to people who have performed exorcisms i have talked to people who have gone through a bunch of things like that and and it's the imagination at the end of the day astral projection too it's just not looked at it that way. It's given it more, it's given more credibility. So give an example, uh, a friend of mine on hallucinogens a uh, long time ago, tapped into the different astral plants while he was doing so. He went up to heaven and he went down to hell. And we talk about heaven and hell being here in terms of perception and our experience. But out of all the variations of, of, of reality that could possibly exist, there is one where it's absolute pain and there's one where it's absolute connection. And all of the symbolism that goes with that. I mean, people will see angels and shit on hallucinogens, but I mean, that's just their symbolism for freedom, flight, 
right? And then demons, pain, hell, blah, blah, blah. That's just symbolism for that. But that symbolism is still real to us. In a dream, symbolism is still real to us. And so he, in a state of, of, of psychedelic awareness, where his borders were down, decided to go into one of these darker realms of the imagination or astral planes, however you'd like to call it. And something came back with him. Basically, this shadow followed him for years. Every time there was a mirror in the room with him, it would be staring at him for years. And it would immediately fill him with a sense of dread. And that's because he attached to it. He took it back with him. Was it real or was it just the source of his imagination? To him, it was real, right? And that's the thing. This is why people become afraid of demons. Now understand, that thing vanished as soon as he recognized his godhood, as soon as he recognized he was the source, because now there's nothing to fear, right? So it just goes to show you how much our imagination can beat the crap out of us if we don't take our, our place as the source of it. Right, and the same is true for being afraid of ghosts and the same is true for being afraid of, of, of demons and everything else, right? Like, I'm never afraid of these things. And because of that, they never have any influence on me because I am them. And that changes my experience. Now you can call that astral projection or anything else. You can call it the imagination. It's just part of who you are as a being. All of that's within you all the time. Right. And so just, oh, I'm a human with an imagination. All of those are just labels. You are an infinite being that can imagine infinite things in an infinite moment. You don't have to, to like put those into small superficial concepts. Just recognize that you will always be at the mercy of your incredibly vast mind until you take responsibility for that mind. And then as soon as you do, there's nothing that can phase you. Doesn't matter if all of a sudden you become afraid of a ghost. You reconcile. Right. I'm reality. All of that just vanishes. It changes your entire relationship with everything. But as long as you identify, you're going to end up wanting to go into the astral planes. You're going to end up because there's, there's a feeling to that. There's an ego to that as well. It also defines you. And so, yeah, you can travel the astral planes. The more important question is, is there a benefit? Yeah. I was going to say before you brought up that last part that when you conceptualize these things like it, it becomes another egotistical sort of practice like i am someone who can astral project or i am someone who is astral projected or you know whatever it, it may may be but yeah it's like when you recognize that you're everything and everyone all the time forever here and now like those things just sort of all of a sudden come to come into your potential ability like those recognitions, because you first see that you're everyone and everything. And I think people who don't recognize that and experience it, that is where the labels come from. But really, there is nothing that you need to label it as once you recognize that you're everyone and everything, because it's no different than any other, or it's not so different than any other experience that you may have, as jarring as it would be when you think you are what you think you are. Yeah, this is why for years, um, I just identified as crazy, right? That was it because the walls were all coming down. The limits were all coming down. The ideas of myself didn't make any sense anymore. And when you take all the ideas of yourself away and you just leave yourself with your capacity, there's no limits. Like your reality is, is so vast. And, and 
the more you get out of your way, the more you start to realize there's no way to communicate this. That doesn't make me sound crazy. Like there's no way to talk about this in its entirety with somebody who's still identifying as a human being without them wanting to lock me up, right? Because this mentality to somebody like that is terrifying because it's there's no certainty in it. Everything's a question. Everything's ambiguity. It's like, just settle it. Let's, let's just settle down and answer. I can go to work, right? <laughs> there is no answer. Why are you going to work? There's no time. You know, and so all of that, it just, it makes it very difficult to, to get by in the world. So on that note, and in the same vein, and I want to ask this because we are running out of time. And this was somebody on our Discord server specifically who asked this. Okay. In the book by Deepak Chopra, MetaHuman, he mentions that there is a girl who can communicate with birds when she is in a state of clarity by being in clarity and inserting an intention into herself as reality, calling the birds to her. Now, this is something I believe he actually mentioned in How to Know God as well which is another really good book. But um, with that in mind, and, and, he, and they go on to describe, from the Indian tradition, I thought of a quality in consciousness known as abhimsa. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which means harmlessness, the, the empathy extended to all living things, which goes back exactly to what we're talking about, is when you start to recognize that everything is you, the ripples that you make, the impact that you have, the relationships that form naturally and organically, the way you move changes, right? Do you think that that's something that, one, is it comes naturally as you get out of your own way? Is it something you've, you've experienced yourself? And I know um, you're going to talk about the bird who made a friend with you recently on your windowsill, right? And do you think that it's something that humanity should focus on, on developing in terms of an empathetic actual connection to all living things? Yeah, absolutely. I, I did see that question as well. And I was thinking about it when I first saw it and it's, it kind of ties back to what we were just talking about when there is less borders to what you are. And it's like, we settle on because we think we are this human that this is all that we can, you know, control or have influence over. But the reality is that you're always influencing your environment to some degree. So who's to say that it has to stop, you know, where your skin stops. And if, if you are everything in the, you are existence or the universe experiencing itself, like who's to say that there are limits to your impact to your influence and could it be that just the idea of what you think you are and, and thinking that you are limited to this experience is the only thing limiting you to this experience like it's kind of like which came first your thought that this is limiting or this actually being what's limiting so yeah when it comes to to the bird I could absolutely see that and I think it, it ties into what Jesus was able to experience with his miracles because he wasn't identified as limited whatsoever. He was able to change his mind and change when he recognized that, you know, he was the water and the wine and the room and all the people in it. It does start to make a little bit more sense as to how he would be able to change that, but it's not like coming from this. He was just, a magician type thing it was he there it's so much there's so much more to that recognition and and even 
walking on water kind of similar idea. So it, it just brings about the question is, you know, if, if we are limited to what we think we are only because that's what we think we are and the power, we know the power of our mind is, is very fascinating and very deep. So it brings about that question. And so with, yeah, with the bird that was on my windowsill, it actually, I think something kind of tragic happened because I was gone for the weekend and then came back and the eggs weren't there anymore. And yeah, typically they usually hatch and are there for at least a little bit while. So guessing either something came in and ate it or it was a pretty small ledge they were on. So it might've blown over in a storm or something kind of sad, but I did have a bird on my windowsill making a nest. The nest is still here. So there's uh, the leftovers that I have to look at right out my window every day. Um, but yeah, it was kind of cool because I was gone in Florida for a week or two and I came back and a bird had made a nest there. And so it was, it went from thinking it was in this secluded place to being two feet away from me while I'm sitting at my desk all day. And, but it was cool because I was able, I was very much like, I would look at it and recognize like, I am you, like I am you. And I did feel like there was a, some sense of, of comfort in that, in the bird, because it wasn't, it, it saw, I don't know, maybe it saw itself in me too, but, um, it, I mean, it didn't fly away or, or freak out when I came and noticed it. Um, it seemed fairly calm. So yeah, I mean, I wasn't controlling it or telling it to go fly or anything, but I, I definitely was in the mentality of recognizing that it, it is me. Yeah. And that begs the question, right? Like I know Deepak describes it as being in a state of clarity and inserting an intention, but I think it's more or less being in a state of clarity and just having the intention as both parties to come together right or, or or embodying a sense of love which kind of goes back to like the uh the practice of ho'oponopono right which is the the practice of focusing on that person and then dealing with whatever comes through your head like it's your problem and that allows them to start healing right because you're helping them deal with their problem because you're them right which is fantastic and i i, I think that that's very much the point and animals always kind of get me that way is that when you actually have a moment with an animal where you're calm and they're not immediately uh, on defense because they're in the middle of something or somewhere they're not, not supposed to be and they typically know, there's such a different relationship. When you can just sit beside a rabbit and be aware of one another, it's a very different feeling than sitting beside a human being who you know is lost in their head, right? That animal is super aware of you being there. And if you're just aware of them being there, then there becomes this connection because you're not in your head, you're aligned, right? And all of a sudden you, you can almost start to feel their presence. And the real question is how deep does that go, right? How, how connected are we? And does the limitation on our connection directly coincide with our commitment to ourselves as separate, right? And so it's something that, again, we have to work it ourselves in order to even experiment with it. We can't toss it to science and say, hey, science, explain this because we don't know the scientists are self-aware <laughs> to some degree, right? They could be just looking at this in terms of, of numbers and quantifiable data instead of the subjective experience or the subjective reality of being one, 
Right. So there's so much more in that question for sure. Um, I do have one more, but we'll, we'll toss this over to you first and then we'll uh, wrap up. Mm. All right. This one is definitely on a different vein, but kind of similar to what we were talking about before. What do I do about a partner who is very unresponsive and is hard to communicate with? That is a really good question. It really depends on why they're unresponsive and why they're hard to communicate with. Cause it could go a couple of different ways. Um, they could feel like they're not in fact being related to, and so they're, they're shutting themselves off. Um, or, or it could be that they have no interest in what you're talking about, which often, it often uh, also happens. So it's really difficult because without understanding the relationship, it's hard to tell why that person might be blocking you out or being unresponsive, but more likely, than anything else it's because they're caught up in something that they're going through and so the best way to get them to be responsive is show some consideration for that care about that not just show consideration for it but actually care just just wonderly why are you being so unresponsive be there with them without any expectation stop trying to demand that they they you know just break out of their shell because sometimes they won't right and and it's because of that expectation it's because they don't feel like they can say the right thing without screwing it up and so they just decide not to say anything that often happens but people are unresponsive because they're afraid typically you know other than that typically because they're resentful um that's about it or they doubt themselves and they don't feel like they can they can just talk and be themselves yeah yeah i feel like people so quickly go to what they did wrong if their partner is acting a certain way but like you just said it, it oftentimes like very much more often than not comes down to something they're going through and something they're dealing with so because we so quickly think like what am i doing wrong we don't even think that it could not have to do with us at all and recognizing that is a great first step in being able to understand and empathize with them and their situation and it, it could also be a combination of both or maybe you know, they were unresponsive and because of something they were going through and you immediately thought it had to do with you. And then they became less responsive and sort of dug into this hole. So I think being able to recognize that typically, at least initially, it doesn't, it has to do with something they're going through uh, can help and bring about clarity to what you do moving forward. But a lot of times, you know, people don't even need, they don't need advice. They just need someone to listen to them and, and talk through whatever they're going through. So I guess it's never something, you know, we, we can't figure it out from this, this call right now, but uh, I think those are some, you know, potential viable options and recognitions to have that can bring about some more clarity to the situation. Totally. All that in mind, it's also really important to remember not to just be trying to satisfy your needs. Like often we get frustrated when somebody's being unresponsive because we don't have a sense of control over how that's going to end or whether the relationship's going to turn out well or anything else. And so it's very difficult for us to be patient while this person works through their stuff because we want them to do better so we can go out and move on with our life and start feeling better. And so it's really important that if you really do care about this person and they're being unresponsive, don't have an expectation of them immediately healing just so you can move on with your happy-go-lucky life. If you really care, sit with them. Let them open up to you organically over time. 
right? Let them have their own timeline. And, and that doesn't mean that you have to stick around forever. I mean, if it's just ongoing and you, and you recognize the relationship isn't going to progress and they're not going to grow because you're there, then maybe that's the end of the relationship. But that also goes towards accepting that sometimes we don't have control. We can just make the most out of the position that we're in or the situation that we're in. I have one more question. I totally, uh, actually I have two more questions, but I'll, I'll settle with this one. Have you ever suffered from perfectionism? And if so, how far did it spread into your life? Ooh, that is, that is a good one. Um, hmm. I think perfectionism is oftentimes, I think Gary Vee says this a lot, that perfectionism is a mask for insecurity and it's where it's oftentimes rooted in because we don't feel secure in ourselves and our abilities. We try and, you know, make everything perfect all the time, but at the same time, perfect and the ideal output is not objective. It is very much subjective. So I think when it comes to, you know, for example, being a content creator, being a perfectionist content creator, that is a very subjective way of, of existing. And it's going to make things more difficult because quality is not objective also. So like what's perfect to you might not be perfect to someone else. And what is perfect to someone else might not be perfect to you. So that can be, I mean, that can be like plugged into any type of situation, but oftentimes when we are insecure about ourselves and our abilities and how we fit into situations, we will use perfectionism to oftentimes just stay stagnant and, and kind of, what's the word, validate our ability to not keep moving and not take action or not do something. And I see that with people who are, for example, a friend or someone who is starting to create content and they have like one video they're so focused in on for like a week editing it to be perfect. And in my mind, I'm like, they're like, all right, which version do you think? And I'm like, post all of those versions and then make a different version of each one and just post it like a hundred times and see what happens. Let the market decide which one actually works out. Cause especially on something like TikTok, like no one's going to see two of them. They're only ever going to see one. So you like, you might as well just throw it out there. Like that's where my head is with this type of stuff now. So, but yeah, I think oftentimes perfectionism gets caught up in insecurity. So like I definitely practiced and was more of a perfectionist when I cared a lot about what other people thought of me because I, I saw or felt like my value was derived from how other people perceived not only me, but my work or the thing that I was doing, because that is a extension of me. But as long as you derive your sense of value from that, you will always be existing in a state of lack because they just go hand in hand. That's just how it works. So when you recognize that you're whole and complete, no matter what shit you do, or no matter what type of video you produce or anything, there isn't that perfectionism that goes along with it. And you just start, you know, throwing seeds out there, as we say, and just see what happens and sit back and watch as opposed to tying your sense of worth to everything that you ever create.
Yeah, absolutely. I don't have much to add to that at all, except for the fact that when we when we are trying to be perfectionists, it's like we create this invisible bar that we have to live up to all the time. And because of that, nothing's ever good enough. So it's almost counterproductive in that we're trying to be perfect and making ourselves feel less and less perfect as we do. Right. Whereas the only real perfection is in imperfection in process. Right. Growth as it goes on. I mean, you can you can break it up into per perfect or imperfect success or failure. It's all just a, a dichotomy of concepts again. Right. So that was a great answer. I just wanted to say that um, I do have one last question, but we're going to fit one more in from your side first. Oh, this one. I forgot. This one was here. I saw this earlier. <laughs> What's the first recorded source of non-duality idea? I'm going to go out and say the Vedas. I, I'm going to say like, it's, it's pretty early going way back. Like it's, it's not like, so this knowledge has always been there. And I'm sure if we had more historical knowledge, we'd find more references to this, but I mean, yeah, it, it's a pretty common concept that's come up numerous, numerous times. But if you go and look at the Upanishads or you look at the Bhagavad Gita, it's in there. I mean, the Vedas, they, they have the same recognition. You are that I am that everything is that. So I would say that's probably one of the oldest, but I'm not a historian by any, by any means. So I'm sure there's some older stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking of it from a different way that how it's interesting that it's sort of become something that we even call an idea. Cause it was probably early on just what it was. And then over time we started to perceive duality and then non-duality sort of became a concept. And so that was like the birth of it as a concept was just our progression into deeper into the illusion of duality almost. So the earliest records of it are probably around the time when we started to perceive duality and take that to be the truth, as opposed to when there was just the recognition of unity there was no records of non-duality because it was just a concept once it became a concept more so but obviously i think then there were probably there were obviously people who recognized it when a bunch of other people weren't recognizing it so i guess that's sort of when it started to get recorded more so when they were like wait you guys aren't recognize this why aren't you recognize this oh so now we have to talk about this and, and give it a name because there's you know the perception of duality happening for sure else not to mention the fact that of course any any structure or any group of people who would have practiced the recognition of non-duality would have more than likely been non-violent unlike all of the other religions that were based on the on the ego which were violent Right. So those groups would have been wiped out pretty early in the same way that the Gnostics were wiped out by the first Christians. So it's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, last question. Ray and Andrew seem to be in sync on just about everything. But is there any is there anything about non-duality that you can't qu quite see eye to eye on? Ooh, that is interesting. So uh, I think my initial take is Ray, obviously he recognized this for, for longer. There is more he has explored with regards to it. Not that there's anything to explore necessarily. Um, I think 
the recognition of you know non-duality is is pretty basic and pretty simple when you get it although it's not really when people try to conceptualize it um so there's not really that much to disagree on i think with it though there's just less that i there's still i still have more layers that i haven't quite peeled back on yet although i do recognize that i'm not andrew i am the reality of what is here and now and then there are no ideas to cling to i think there's probably more subconscious biases that i that i haven't come up necessarily but um i think that's just from less quote unquote time with the recognition if that makes sense that absolutely makes sense i'm going to say just to summarize this quickly that andrew and i see eye to eye pretty much all of this stuff in terms of the recognition, the concepts, the truth beneath it, what is, and so on and so forth. The only thing that Andrew and I may not see eye to eye on at the moment would be the application of those insights. And that's not something that we're actually going to be able to see until we meet in person for the first time, which is coming up. And I just want to remind everybody, if you want to be part of that meeting, join us on Patreon because that's where the footage is gonna go. But in that meeting, Andrew is going to actually get to see me as I am in the world, me as I am dealing with people, me as I am not giving a fuck. And so that's where we're gonna see exactly how, how much of a disparity there is between the application that Andrew is currently in and the application that I'm currently in, because that's really the only difference is that I'm farther down the I don't give a fuck road. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think with that, there's definitely I'm still certainly finding my balance, whereas you have worked through a lot of that initial turbulence. I'm still in it, absolutely, and kind of like surrendering to it as it comes. But yeah, it's like it it, it can be there. It, it, it's rare that I go a full day without having an up and a down with the recognition sort of. And so, yeah, I think it's just finding my balance and continuing to go back and forth, which I always will be, but I think that it gets a little bit steadier the longer you're going back and forth. Totally. It's a self-refining process though. Admittedly, I'm calling myself refined there. I'm not sure if that's necessarily applicable. Um, and on that note, that is the end of our season two Q&A episode. Thank you again to everybody who submitted questions. We really appreciate your participation. We look forward to seeing anybody who's listening to this who hasn't already joined Discord. Join us on Discord. Join us on Patreon. Be involved with the community. It's growing by the day. And then in season three, which is also going to be very exciting, we're going to have another Q&A episode, maybe even two, because we keep getting more questions. So on that note, we're going to wrap up here. Anything to add, Andrew? That is all. This is a fun episode. I love doing the Q&As. I'm looking forward to the next one and looking forward to season three getting going in the not too distant future. And on that note, have an excellent week and we'll see you next time for episode 18. Bye, everyone.